Good evening and welcome to the new installment of TAFCast, the ninth one, where we're looking at the past, present and future of UNITAF, brought to you today by the dramatic duo Zuka and Skelm. Hey, hey. And joined by our lovely leader, James, and special guesting, White Wolf. Yo. How are you doing? So me and White Wolf are the only two people that don't have their own avatar. Yes, <laughs> yeah. it, it can be arranged. I, th- I, I would like to see. Wasn't asked. <laughs> I would like to see a version with four of us in. Yeah, just do that for future Tafcas. I think that's every guest gets an avatar. Every, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I dread the day we get Kevin as the guest because it'll just be pizza. Anyway, well, Kevin uh, has an avatar already. Um, <laughs> cool. So today the topics are basically all about learning. Uh, we're looking at a new implementation of lesson plans and the field training exercises they deal with. But let's look at what's happened since our last TAFCAS on the 2nd of October. Uh, what's been going on? There's been an ACE update where you can now set people on fire. Vehicle crews are actually being hurt now when their vehicles explode. And I think an interesting one to look at is if you haven't noticed yet as a group leader, you can rename a group. And you can rename crates, which is super useful. And is totally not getting abused at all. Eight ball. No, not once. <laughs> no, never. Never seen it. No, no. Uh, some other additions as well, of course, are timed interactions. So you can actually see how long it's going to take uh, for medics to stitch up. So they can give a bit more of an ETA or repacking mags, all that good stuff. Uh, just a bit of quality of life, really. Also, way more va- uh, variables in CPA settings, so on, so forth. Uh, still thinking with a bit of stuff, I believe. But yeah, that's that. Uh, Unitaf intern, we've had a major SOP update on forward observers and uh, what is it? FFSC? Fire section. Fire support chief. Fire support chief. You should know this. You did the FTX. I know abbreviations are <laughs> not my strong suit. I know, I know what it's been doing. And uh, of course, grounds for hours deduction, though. What I did perfectly, thank you. The one thing you, you should take away from the FTX: the name. Alongside that, of course, a new CivRP role, which is the combat journalist, uh, which has already been successfully deployed in. Uh, Overture was it as a war journalist uh, some great RP opportunities there alongside of course absolutely amazing pictures videos and so on which uh, also leads into the next thing which is Intel oh, just, just before yeah. you do someone put it out in the chat you, you've missed your favourite part of the Ace update uh, yes on purpose because I knew Zuka <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to get into the overheating thing because that's a, <laughs> that's a whole Tafcast for itself. <laughs> so yeah. um, it's worth touching on though that we, so when the overheating update came out, we reduced the um, severity of it um, when it was released, but we probably will review that. I haven't heard of it being an issue since, but um, it definitely plays, as much as UK hates it, it plays a part somewhere. Yeah, that could be an yeah. actual question for the audience, just quickly. Has anybody noticed cooking off? And with what weapon was it? 
I don't think it's cooking off specifically. So they probably would have in the first two lots. I don't know if it's cooking off specifically, but the um, like the rate of fire and accuracy variables when your weapon gets hot. I don't think it should happen for rifles because um, you'd have to shoot way more rounds that you could carry, but probably machine guns. But then that's negated by the spare barrels, isn't it? But I, I don't know. Has anyone actually changed a barrel in an op recently? I've seen a lot of people taking water bottles with them to cool it down. How much cook-off they actually had, I don't know, because you can just write it off as a suppressor fire. In theory as well, yeah. the MGs we do use are open bolts, so they should be mitigating that a little. I don't know if that's correctly or realistically, uh, realistically yes. modeled, though. Yeah, what they yeah. do, however, is they have a failure to feed or a failure to fire, and from that point on, they start cooking off, because technically, like, the barrel would be closed, it wouldn't have primed the, the shot, and from then on, it would start cooking off. It's a bit weird how uh, Ace does it, because sometimes you can drop your weapon, leave it there for half an hour, pick it back up, and it's still the heat of the sun, basically. Also, switching guns in between people doesn't work. Is that a failure to feed? Is that similar to when Kevin negates to provide the PC? Ah, <laughs> oh. 100%. <laughs> um, can you just make that pop up on his screen the entire time? I'll send him a voice memo. Um, <laughs> so, in all seriousness, I think the cook-off will probably revisit I, I, I mean, this is, there's a lot of stuff in this that we talk about in Tavcast that we should put a massive disclaimer on so you don't expect anything to, to happen from this but I think we'll probably revisit it and look at how we can um, find a happy medium between the way that Ace want, wanted to implement it which is three times more severe than the way we've currently got it set and where we are right now because I think there's a place for spare barrels and, and things like that essentially the attitude I have is that the the volume of fire should come from the des the weapons designed to put the volume of fire down, which is you know the two four nines, and that's why they have interchangeable barrels. Um, and so there should be some sort of penalty for the for the rifles if they wanted to throw eight hundred rounds down in quick succession, which I don't think anyone does anyway. But so we'll maybe come back to look at that. Yeah, there's always a bit of big batch of work in progress going on with these things in particular. Uh, Zuka started talking about a new thing that's been opening up more and more, and that was the addition of the intelli intelligence channel, yes, which I'm actually just... very excited about. And I wanted to throw this question at you, Zuka, in particular. Um, because you're involved with a campaign that uses it, Sapphire, how was the engagement with it? How do you like it? So when I did this testing with the encrypted intel, uh, that just came to me as a like spur-of-the-moment thing because I did not intend to put uh, screen there, which actually had the UNITAF thingy. <laughs> but it's it's a great plot point, really. So uh thought I'd encrypt some stuff you might find on a USB drive, whatever. Uh, just let that sit on the Intel Center. Uh, took a few days until it was noticed. I think it was just with the introduction of the Intelligence Channel. Yeah, uh, that's when I noticed it, too. Exactly. And But as soon as that came out, 10 minutes later, I had four or five people directly in my inbox just saying, oh, I, I figured it out, I figured it out, which is just, it, it just put a big smile on my face just seeing that someone actually went and tried whatever but trying to put down. Uh, I think it's a great, great thing, really. And I, I hope to see it more because I just love this ARG stuff. And I yeah, how me far too. I can go it, it. it is probably one of the first channels I check when I check the Unself Discord. When I see intel intelligence pop up, it, it's the first one I look at. It's really cool. 
yeah. think it's uh, we we definitely put those broadcasts in uh, because of Zuka's complaints about nobody. nobody <laughs> I was sad about it, <laughs> but but, but you don't have to tell him. But since we put it in, like <laughs> even just with the things I'm involved with, like enduring freedom and World War Two, like before the op, I thought, you know what, I could put this in the op board, but. You know, it's just an image, and it's so easy just to go on there, post an image, put some text next to it, and and it, it actually, for everyone going to the op to see that, like it's a bit of context. And then I did a couple after, or sorry, I did one after the op as well. Um, and because that, you know, op boards are really the only, and war knows are the only specific deployment communications that we do at the moment. So to be able to augment that with um, the intel, and there is also a ping for the tactical maps. I don't know all campaigns have them, but if you think about like. Enduring freedom, where you've got like the influence map and, and sapphire to that extent, and, and anything else. When the GMs update the intel on the map, they can also ping it so that you know when the maps have been updated. So that's also um, something we just need to get all the campaigns to use it regularly, and then obviously it will be a much busier channel. Yeah, and Azuka called it ARG augmented reality. That is a a lovely way to look at it, I think, because we're continually working on the deployments and campaign center as a as a holistic picture with logistics, um, persistence, and just the intel surrounding everything we do. That's pretty cool. Yeah, this is crazy because you see it in lots of other forms of media as well. The most notable for me is Battlefield with the entire the amount of ARGs Battlefield 3 and 4 had. And that's just something that really it's just so it's just so cool to see that people actually engage outside of the game. And it's also a bit of an easier way for us to make something that isn't an op but can still engage people. So yeah. Uh, also I think one of the I don't shouldn't really bring it up. It's, obviously we had the issue of the injured freedom op with the helicopter engage in the I think it was a genuine mistake where we were going going out and uh, an AO and someone just thought fire a few rounds off the helicopter side gun, but you know those rounds landed somewhere. And as a GM, like straight, I'm thinking that the consequences don't end and, until endex. You know that, that's how it works, right? So it's opened up a new avenue of actually we can make everyone aware of the consequences of their actions in deployments, so that everyone behaves differently, uh, acts differently. And, and part of that is the future stuff we talked about in the campaign center, like the reputation ratings for different factions, like civilians and things like that. And I think that's just an extension of it. So whether it's so you do something really well or not, or really bad, like the Intel Challenge gives us an easy way to push the storyline for that campaign in different directions between missions and not necessarily during them. Yeah, as a as an immediate co consequence, right after the action, you've got a slap on the wrist where the campaign manager goes, oh, did you hear about that incident about civilians being killed or friendly fire? But that could also escalate into a new deployment and therefore more gameplay value later down the line. So the possibilities are really endless. Yeah, also ties it in for people who weren't on the op. Remember doing, uh, was it like, rescuing people that have been left behind and that became its own sf mission yeah but people who were on that weren't necessarily on the previous one so they didn't really like get the link so that's again it's a really nice way to tie stuff together um yeah 
Yeah, moving on. We've got a couple more things to look at uh, in the backwards direction. And there was one since the uh, last half cast as a major sitrep, which dealt with the ranks restructure. So if you haven't yet, look at the announcements on the website and read the sitrep from the, oh dear, 15th of October? It, it took effect on the 18th. And, yeah, and have a good read on uh, how we're dealing with ranks now f- facing forward. Has to say, from uh, when we we obviously a change of that nature was um, from an organisational perspective quite substantial, and uh, certainly when we were mapping that out, I was on the warpath just to make sure that we'd cover all angles. But it's fair to say that the since it was implemented, I don't think we've had any any comments really. Um, it was accepted at least um, from my perspective relatively well. So. Yeah, and again, it's a cosmetic change, isn't it? The ring uh, or structure change, really, because well, it's just meant for longevity, and it's what we said last uh, Tafcast as well. Short term was it? Short term pain for long term gain. I think was the motto. Yeah, and if you look yeah. at it as well, it it is supporting the growth of Unit Taf, and it's also reflecting how much we've grown since it first became a thing to have all these parameters and criteria to move up the rank. What was it? A thousand percent increase in deployment per month? Yeah, or in so slot hours was it? When we, I think I explained it in the set. We don't need to spend too much time on it now. But when we originally sat down and did it, the idea was like you don't want people to rank up too quick because sort of like there'll be. Think about someone like Bex. You know, like three months ago, he was the highest rank, and the worst thing that I could think of is in five years' time, and I fully intend you to have to be three times the size that it is now in, in that period of time because I know we're not going to be on the game rod now. We're, you know, as I always say, we'll be on a game that supports 500 players or whatever. Well, he would never have changed rank in five years. I mean, well, where's, where's the satisfaction in that? And then conversely, there'll be like 40 other people at the same rank as him. So, and, and then when, when we originally decided those requirements, we were deploying every other week. And as you pointed out, that's now increased by something like a thousand percent we were doing i think i mentioned it's 180 slot hours per month in in that period and now we're doing you know in the thousands so yeah it's it's a massive increase yeah and as part of it we're also we've also uncapped the unit size which was previously at, at 120 and we've had a steady influx of new recruits and if you're one of them and listening welcome to unitaf good to have you and as such, we're just continuing our growth. Yeah. Yeah. Part of that is just the natural attrition as well. So, you know, you have to, you, you have to, we, we've always had this problem is it's all or nothing. A couple of podcasts ago, we were talking about that we had to close recruitment and it was looking like that a few weeks ago. And we had a bit of a discussion, like, do we do it again? Because we just get, we just get applications all day, every day. And you know what do you do? do you you have to make a decision and i'd say we've almost taken on the to the comfortable limit of new people like you don't want to have too many new people at once cuz it's too much of a dynamic change and you need time for them to integrate in things you know you want to have some period of time as the new guy don't you you don't want to be the new guy for like 2 days and then there's another new person so there is an intake tomorrow but i think it's just about where we want it to be at the moment Cool. Shall we move on then to the what's going on now? 
big theme of the day. Yeah, all about learning. So FTXs. How do we want to talk about this first? Um, I think we've got the man who's got his head in the game there. Uh, doing <laughs> a lot of, haha, I had to, had to bring that in somehow. Yeah, uh, there is. <laughs> uh, you and Johannes, I believe, have been doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes, along with other ArcGIS members, in uh, implementing a new system with uh, lesson plans, which should streamline the process yeah. of FTXs and also give the attendees a bit more of a, uh, well, not warning, but more of a, uh, what she said, insight like, in, into what they're going to do. Exactly, yeah. Because uh, how it's been now, and uh, I'm absolutely guilty of this, is I have an idea for an FTX. Uh, I yes, I do write some scribble notes down, but never in like a really structured lesson plan because that's that's just how I do <laughs> do it. <laughs> so <laughs> you've got two complete opposite sides of the spectrum here with uh, me and the White Wolf and Skull Collector, who like do meticulous prep work and everything, and I just kind of have my thing down and I know what I'm gonna do and that's how I'm gonna do it. Uh there's of course positives and negatives to both, but I'd say my negatives far outweigh the positives that are in a system now, in a streamlined system, and what's been done with uh again the lesson plans. So why don't you just give us a quick summary of what the lesson plans are and then we'll just pick that topic apart. Yeah, no worries. <clears throat> so um, it's interesting you say about positives and negatives. I think I think the 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 key difference isn't necessarily that one is any better than the other. Um, it, it, depending on who's doing it is the key key function. So the reason I've kind of introduced um, this way of doing the doing the lesson plans and John has been really helpful um, with, with getting that going in the right direction um, has been. Is because we we obviously like to standardize the way that we do things. We like to get the right result. We like to learn from um, how we do things previously and reflect on that and and build on that to be able to kind of produce something better next time. And the the, the way that the unit does things, um, AARs on missions are a really good example. Uh, and therefore, we want to be able to replicate that within the FTX structure. So where um, how things kind of were and to an extent still are for the for, for the time being in certain certain uh, practice areas um are like what zuka's just said um which are uh there's an idea a concept a really good ftx somewhere up in somebody's head we really want to be able to extract that and put that down on paper to be able to then long term mean that that person doesn't have to run that ftx every single time it's been done to get the to get the same outcome um or to get the to get the same standard so if we were to take that conceptual, what's written down with the kind of basic notes and apply that with all the experience and learning that somebody has um, and, and pass it to somebody pass it to somebody else, in theory, they would then attach their own experience or their own knowledge or so, so on and so forth to, to this idea and it becomes something quite different. Um, so the FTX structure uh, is simply basically being... Um, been put in place so that we can standardize the way that we do certain FTXs, in fact, pretty much all FTXs, so that we get the same standard, the same result. We can improve on that standard every time that we do it by taking on the feedback from the uh, from the AARs and from um, conception and ideation and be able to then enhance that going forward. Um, and that will then help us build our library of FTXs that uh, deliver certain parts of the standard operating procedure within all the um, with, within within the practice areas that we've got, so that we will have a library that 
uh, I think this kind of comes around to the second positive, which is without one person who's super experienced being able to do it, we can take somebody who wants to learn to instruct, who wants to instruct a certain thing um, or, you know, contribute um, to the to the unit in that way. And with their, you know, good level of knowledge, subject matter expertise in their practice area, be able to take this lesson plan and simply execute it to go and just do it um, and, and, and run it in that way to get the same result with that level of support in the background, in the planning, in the, in the whatever. So that's a very... Actually, quite wordy summary. Um, I realise now, probably a bit, br- br- bit uh, be a bit briefer. Um, but yeah, that's a that's a general overview of the uh, the FTXs and the um, lesson plan structure. So you're almost turning an FTX plan into an opod to train from. Yeah. So um, uh, Scapes done uh, a fab job um, demonstrating how the uh, the lesson plan element of an FTX can both um be put in place to then tell people what it is that you're going to go do so pre previously you used to have a have an ftx let's call it um like fire team leading or tier one fire team leading um we didn't necessarily know what it is that we're going to do other than you know learn learn fire team leading it's kind of a big topic lots of lots of uh lots of stuff that could be contained within it um whereas the way that we can now put um stuff into the what you know the the op or the the lesson plan or the insight will be that actually on that ftx you can now go see what it is that you're going to go do what it is that you're going to learn what the outcome is so uh what what it is that you're going to take away from it or be able to do after the ftx um what sops are going to be covered off so that you can do your your reading up beforehand so that you kind of got a good knowledge before you even walk into the ftx that we can then build on rather than having to teach the basics in it and uh and finally as well if there's any specialist equipment so if we take take away JFTL and um, apply something like combat support. Well, what equipment are we actually going to be using on this on this FTX? Yeah, we're saying that we're going to be an artillery person, but what is it going to be heavy? Is it going to be medium? Is it going to be you know what kind of things are we actually going to use? And the reason for that is so that somebody who's maybe done that FTX before might see that there's some different equipment, some different output, some different content that they've not learned before, um, and go actually, I would have written that off previously, but that is now valuable to me because that's containing something new. Something that I haven't learned, something that I will uh, will benefit from being there. Yeah, for most of the time now, that's just been done with naming the FTX in a certain way, and you might have seen, especially with that one uh, navigation FTX, it just had a really long title because that's all the things we handled in it. Uh, and I think a important distinction here to make is that we have a public facing and a like back end facing lesson plan. So again, for anyone that's attending. You have a quick summary of what's coming up, what SOPs are we covering. And again, as White Wolf said, it just gives you a nice summary or like a nice checklist of things we're going to look at and for you to also reflect at the end. Oh, was this covered? Did I look at this? Have I learned something today? And I think that's just really like streamlined, really nice. Uh, it's a bit more initial work, I'd say, right? With like making all the lesson plans and writing them down. Because again, now we have scraps like flying on everyone's one drives or multiple drives or whatever. <laughs> yeah, uh, if you've never done a plan before, for that, <laughs> <laughs> Skull uh, very, very uh, helpfully gave it a go in uh, using it to construct um, a new lesson plan. And uh, how was that Skull, the actual creation of it? It was intimidating at first on the back end because there was a lot of things to consider and a lot of things to think about prior, prior to deploying on it as it were 
But once you get into the groove of it, it does take you step by step through the creation just as it does through the execution of it as you're on the server. And that's really cool, I think. Yeah, it's just yeah. like learning for a test, isn't it? Like you write a quick summary. Or you think like, oh, I'm going to take this little note. I'm going to write all the stuff that's going to be in the test on it. And you try to look at it during the test, but you don't really need it because you've already got it right down there. Most, yeah. most you'll need it, especially in the FTXs, is just for kind of mentally checking off things. Have I done this? Have I done this? Have I done this? Yeah, it's um, the, the, the idea on that, I, I completely understand your, your perspective skull as well. Um, when I start, started kind of taking... Um, these on and, and using them like they can be quite intimidating to do at first but once you get into the rhythm of knowing how to write it and what what you know how where it comes from actually having that physically written down on paper means that um uh we can get to a point where uh, to give you an example uh the other week um Rizzler managed to put in and facilitate a structure clearing ftx with almost no support uh korean and i were were also present as um assistant instructors but Rizzler was able to facilitate that entirely by himself having been on the FTX previously but but not created the lesson plan but simply from the lesson plan being able to go this needs to happen then this then this then we talk about these things these are the things that we you know we need to tell them um these are the things that we demonstrate the, you know in a step-by-step -step order it's really easy to follow for any instructor to be able to go take their experience and knowledge and be able to apply it to a set structure that means we get the same same result each time um, and he needed almost like no input whatsoever um and that was a really really good test case to say well actually that means that this this structure now we can put in a position where when we've got these ftx's developed in this in this manner that people who wouldn't usually have come forward to say i can run an ftx because you kind of have to come up with it or you have to design it or um at least speak to somebody you know and, and do a lot of that planning yourself can actually pick up the pick up the thing and it's a bit of a step-by-step -step for the instructors on exactly what to do um, and exactly what to say, what to do, and we got a really good result out of that FTX. Yeah, and you can quite comfortably even let go of the ownership of that combat area if you're the usual suspect to be running that FTX because you're very good at it. You're the guy who wrote the SAP, perhaps. You've got the knowledge that the lesson plan is perfectly well suited to be run by anybody, as long as they've got a good pacing for the for teaching. And that yeah. was demonstrated by you and Rizzler then, and also by the FOFSC uh, FTX the other day, where I just chucked the lesson plan into Zuka's hands and said, go ahead. And he did. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it, it, it's no different to a mission in that context. If, if, if platoon leaders are ill and can't turn up, you know, whilst it's slightly less than ideal to lead somebody else's plan, if you've got a half decent op board in place and a movement plan, most leaders could interpret that and execute it uh, without needing to spend another half an hour coming up with a plan. Yeah, I think it basically leads... Gone. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say it because I don't think we touched on it at the top for the people that haven't listened to Tavcast before. There'll be a section for questions at, at the end, but if you do have any that you want to ask either about what we're talking about or, to be honest, anything in general, just shove it into the threads uh, that's being used for the live chat and we'll either pin it to come back to or uh, we'll pick it up straight away. Um, whilst we are talking about lesson plans, there, there's no real limit to, I guess, what questions or comments you can make. So um, bear that in mind. Uh, just on lesson plans, the only thing I'd say, I think it's just a natural progression. This actually on the roadmap wasn't 
um, a current priority. It was a bit of a later one, but Scape and um, Scape went to work on it from a development perspective and to the point where it's about to be rolled out. So, um, but it's interesting because what, what we're talking about is essentially that the requirement for an NCO to be on every deployment is still stands, but. I think of the 10 combat areas, four of the most experienced people, if you go on the role center, are non-NCOs. Um, cavalry is one of them. I think air, air crew is another. Um, there's quite a few that the most experienced people are non-NCOs. And there's no reason why they shouldn't be doing the instructing for it. And it's actually the way the system's designed is, you know, when you get to a certain point, the hours requirement is not because you need to go listen to someone talk about that thing for more. It's to encourage people to instruct or to assist to instruct to teach the the newer people so the 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 thing is we we took this step with intakes which was great which was i think it started with shark house who was a school teacher so naturally he made a lesson plan for it and then from there you know that, that's been adapted and applied to other things so i mean if you think of the last 10 and 20 intakes they've been basically identical because of the lesson plan that's followed I and mean, maybe it's done in a slightly different order each time but the content's the same but if you once you standardize that and you take it out of Google Docs and put it on the site, but like we've got for SOP, so there's a single source of truth. We regain control over the authority of the information to make sure that it's standardized. But at the same time, if you think about the statistical things that we can pull from that, you know, what are the average um, ratings of FTXs that follow this lesson plan? which instructor gets the highest range of this lesson plan, which instructor gets the lowest range of this lesson plan. You know, if you get a lot of similar comments for a lesson plan, maybe that lesson plan needs to be updated. So suddenly you, you find a really easy way to improve your lesson plans because you, you've got feedback, not just about an individual practice that stands individually, but about a chain of them that follow the same lesson plan. Yeah. Well, here's, here's a question out of left field, then that you're probably not prepared for. <laughs> <laughs> go on, go on. What if we include um, in the AAR an ability to rate each section, and you can look up what section you're rating by looking at the lesson plan that's forward facing on the website? I think I'd say we'll look into it. <laughs> <laughs> what a PR friendly answer. He's very diplomatic about it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think in the comments that I've read over FTXs that I've done quite recently under the. Um, uh, under the new structure of lesson plan, it's quite easy to see which objectives, which which you know uh, subjects, which phases um, or chapters of the lesson plan people are directly talking to, either through example specific examples that they've included, um, or what it is that they're alluding to. Um, and I think one of the other things is uh, the the very careful balance of theory to uh, the, to practice of um, how long do we talk versus how long do we shoot um, is it is also something where actually uh if we were gonna rate individual individual stuff it'd be interesting to see what the difference is um because i'm yeah. pretty confident that actually the the theory elements would would still get just as high a rating as the practical yeah. um i was just gonna say as well i think that it's interesting because what we're doing with practices now is essentially a lag of what we've done with operations for the you know, the past year, even though the actual split of deployments is like 50-50. So I think of like in the 700 or so deployments, I think just under half of them have probably been FTXs, but they maybe don't get as much love as, as the deployments do. But from a, when you're growing an organization like this and the UNITAF continues to grow and the longer it's around, it's, all it just becomes is about standards and enforcing them. 
And with operations, that's easy because there's an ops approvals process. I mean, a lot of people won't be aware of it, but you know, ops get scheduled and they get approved, and they get approved based on the orbit itself and the opord. And so we've got control over, you know, if, for example, you've got an op, uh, an orbit structure that maybe doesn't work for the opord, one of the senior leaders can maybe go and ask a question to clarify why that is the case, just to see maybe there's a mistake made or whatever. But with the current practices, all we know is how many people are going and what SOPs are being practiced, and we know no no information because there's no lesson plan. So we can't. There's no there's no way we can quality control that. Whereas with a lesson plan, we know what the plan is, and so we can authorize FTXs based on the actual content of it. And as you pointed out, one of the most you know, I used to read every after action report from everything, but I mean, there's like ten thousand of them now. I certainly don't read them all. But one of the ones I notice in FTX is a lot is it will usually say like this section was too long, or this section could have been shorter, as you pointed out. And the great thing about that is they probably don't instill any action at the moment. Like if we see that, that's not going to change, right? Because we look back, we don't actually know how that that particular practice was executed versus one that's coming up. Got you. It was only a matter of time, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but with a lesson plan feature, if we see that comment all the time about the same lesson plan, this this section is too long, or maybe we could have done more, we can actually change the lesson plan for all future FTXs following that standard. So it will drive ah! a, a performance improvement across the board. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Also, something that we've seen being tested. I don't know if this was a thing before, but spicing up the theoretical part. And again, as you White Wolf said, it's almost a bit of a delicate balance in between how much do we talk, how much do we shoot, or uh, in some other areas, like for example, mission support. I've had great difficulties even thinking about how do I bring twenty people to do something in Zeus or do like a mission planning thing. <laughs> How the hell am I going to do that? Because Arma doesn't support it. <clears throat> Arma doesn't support multiple people in, in the editor looking at stuff. Uh, there's been a few work uh, for workarounds around it. And something we've also seen with, I think it was a comms F or leadership FTX, uh, which James Ains and at a later date, Noah held no, is yeah. with the Quiz, quizzes. quizzes yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, it just takes me back to school, really. But <laughs> it's, 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 about, a great, it's a it's, great way to spice it up. It's about thinking outside the box, isn't it? Like, if you're if you want to practice shooting tanks, then just go and shoot tanks. It's a scalable exercise. You know, you can get thirty people on there. Realistically, we've done it in the past, and you can all shoot tanks till the cows come home. And you're genuinely going to pick things up from that. But leadership's difficult because to practice leadership, you need people to to lead to to follow. And, you know, we don't really have, you know, I can't ask 60 people to come on for two hours just so somebody can get experience company commanding. That's just not something that we can do, you know. So how how do you approach those sort of challenges? Things like leadership comms all have the same problems um, and they're hard to scale as practices. And so you have to think outside the box. And I suppose that's an example. All of the leadership FTXs generally that I do are theory because I find you can condense a lot more information into them. And I think the type of people that lead uh, are more receptive to to theoretical practice than than those that aren't. You know, it's a very theory-based thing anyway. Um, and you know, it's not easy to train someone to platoon lead or to, to get, for them to get practice to platoon lead with, without actually platoon leading. There's sort of no in between. So, um, but hopefully, this will open up more diversity, right? You know, I can you say, oh, maybe there's 
maybe there is a way to do what you're saying. You know, we did a mission planning FTX where we had everyone use plan ops and we put them in groups of three and everyone went to a different channel and they planned a mission independently yeah. of one another. And then we came together to deconstruct those plans. So you could maybe do something similar with mission support. Um, I'm not sure how this fits in with the topic of lesson plans, but sure. Um, <laughs> where where you, you go away as, as a small group and you're all in the editor making a mission for half an hour and then you come back together and look at it and maybe discuss it. So there's there's definitely ways of doing it, and I think just thinking outside the box, because we're not, yes, we're here to play armour, but when we're talking about practices, it's all about improving people's skills and, and learning the best practices of things, and it's whatever, the answer is whatever's going to do that most efficiently, and it's a bonus if it's enjoyable at the same time. Yeah, I've, I have done that on Plan House before, to great success, I think everyone that was on it enjoyed it, ARs seemed pretty uh, like reinforcing it in a positive way and uh, at the end we even had some great mission ideas which you might not have noticed but have been snuck in T totally not by me of <laughs> course uh, <laughs> yeah uh, again thinking outside the box and i think if we look at this topic from a bit of a broader perspective as well uh, you don't see many field training exercises in other units or other groups and i think it's something that's also a bit unique to UNITAF itself because we always have this drive of how do we improve ourselves or how can we make people learn and have fun at the same time and I know some of the FTXs I've been to have been just an absolute blast uh, I remember the uh, CivRP one which is just I, I had an actual headache at the end just from laughing <laughs> because it was just so it was amazing really seeing people it, uh, it's <laughs> It's like band camp, but for uh, theater kids. I haven't got <laughs> my only experience of it pre pre UNITAF was the first unit I ever joined that I know a few people from UNITAF from talking twelve years ago was qualification based. Like you you do a you do something and somebody's there with a checklist and then they tick a few things off and say, Yeah, you're qualified. Obviously me being me, I didn't really pass many of those, but um and, and you know, that's how we started out because you know, but but the attitude here is always look at what everyone else is doing and probably just do the opposite. That's probably the best course of action. But I think our system is just rooted around my attitude, which is if if you think you've mastered something, then you're probably wrong. I, I think instructors can, as long as exactly as James says, like they're delivering the content that's compliant with like the SOP and all of the you know the stuff that we want to make sure that is delivered. The manner in which they deliver it, I think there's a there's a there's a there's a bit of room. The the key thing that's got to come after is, okay, I've made this decision to do this slightly differently to the way it's on the lesson plan. I'm not deviating fundamentally or going against the standard, um, but I thought that this would be a good idea. Now, if it was and it's worked and it feels better and it flows better, then that improvement is then generated into the lesson plan, and any further lesson plans that are con any further FTXs of that FTX are then conducted in that way to get the benefit of that best practice. That's the kind yeah. of key thing that I would um, say specifically to that example. I think William just had a cool question and asking, does or should SOP come up before the lesson plan is taught? Yes. And what's the answer? Yes, yes. I reckon. If it doesn't, tell me. Okay. <laughs> It's actually a good topic uh, in, the, there was, in the... There was another question, sorry, I yeah. missed it now. Which one was it? Uh, from Johannes. Yeah, so ch changing the stock, I can think of a few interesting ways to do that. So if 
if a SOP changes version, so the way the SOP versioning works is if there's a major con- content change to a SOP, the actual version number changes. If it's a minor change, the version number doesn't change. So say if the SOP for uh, dealing with casualties goes from version 4 to version 5, then we would just disable the ability to to execute any lesson plans that included that version of that SOP. And so it would force us to make sure that the lesson plans were updated. And I don't think that would be a big deal. Say if there was a, a, a wording changed in terms of, I don't know, how we do something in, in terms of dealing with casualties. Maybe it was like the triage states changed or the classification of the triage states. It would disable anyone's ability to schedule that lesson plan until we rechecked the lesson plan. And just ticked it to say, yeah, that's now complying with this latest version. So I think that'd probably be the easiest way to to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think the chat's talking about a great topic here, which is like again maintaining those lesson plans. And again, as you said, if there's any changes, they must be like annotated, and it must be a new version coming up, uh, stuff like that. Yeah, they've got to be but, they've got to be treated as living. Um, yeah, that's yeah. Not to like just basically go off on a bit of a tangent and go. Actually, I've decided I don't like that chapter as a whole piece and therefore it's going to be written off but in the same way that we try these things for the first time that doesn't mean that we've gotten it right by the hundredth time and it doesn't mean that nothing's changed before that it's also a little bit of a false economy because a lot of people will look at things like this initially and go oh that's a that's a big time investment in making all these lesson plans but the reality is the people running these ftxs are probably doing the same amount of work each each time before they do it to plan the FTX. So yep. if you've pre-planned the FTX and it's taken you two hours and the next 20 times the FTX is executed, it's taken no time to plan. I'm not suggesting it would take no time, but that's a saving. In the same way that three and a half years ago when I coded the ability to deploy on an orbit, I thought, fucking hell, that's four days of my life. That's annoying, isn't it? Well, I think about how much time that saved. So it's just about looking at the investment of the time and going, you know... Um, what what is it going to save in the long run? And I, and I think more people will do FTXs, more people will will lead them. There'll be more uniform, standardised, and hopefully more informative. And so it's probably a worthwhile time investment. I think it almost equivalates based off what Skull um, approximated for him to put it together. That pretty much for every one that you write, it's almost like you've passed the ability to be able to run that in the way that you wanted to somebody else to be able to instruct it. So you've almost like saved that time you know it's almost a, a one for one of i've written it and that and now i don't have to instruct it almost um you can choose to and one thing i noticed anyway was in reviewing or kind of revisioning what i knew and putting it into words for somebody else to read and instruct by i proved to myself hey i can actually teach this and i know what i'm talking about and it's also therefore a cool memory aid for the one writing it and you taught me when we talked about the White Wolf, uh, a lesson plan is never done. And as long as we keep improving it, we're also going to keep improving ourselves and the unit, which is really cool to think about. The good yeah, old donkey yeah. bridge. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's just uh, it, it, it's a, a good mindset and a good um, culture to a, approach these things like that. And, and, and like I say, it doesn't mean... Um, that we're it basically means that we're we're striving for perfection and we're never going to reach it. But that doesn't mean that the 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 idea of going after it is is wrong. Um, like uh, as I said, I alluded to the example before with the the, the FTL. I designed that, thought it'd go perfectly, and it ended up taking almost double the time that I thought it would. 
and there's loads of practical stuff that actually we just need to kind of reshape it. It doesn't mean that the content was wrong. It doesn't mean that there's anything there. I just need to try and find a more effective way to be able to deliver that, and they'll try it again and see if we get a better result. And if we do, that'll become the standard. Just keep improving on that standard till we've got something that works. Yeah, it's baby mm-hmm. step. It's baby steps as well. I mean, you think about it. I, to my knowledge, there's maybe what five lesson plans in existence. I mean, if each combat area had three lesson plans, uh, three different FTXs, which is probably a lowball number anyway, that's 30 lesson plans that should exist in theory. So we're down 25 of those. So at the point where it's mandated that a lesson plan is required, that's a lot of FTXs that are going to be impacted by something that they don't have. So I, I think just by making it a lower barrier to entry as possible, which the FTX templates are, it's essentially how many minutes are you spending on this topic? What is the topic and how are you going to execute it? Um, if that takes 20 minutes to make a fixed wing lesson plan, albeit maybe the first revision, maybe it's not a great lesson plan, at least there's a lesson plan that can be approved upon. And so when the next FTX rolls around, we can uh, build on it and build on it and build on it. So I'm not expecting miracles, but it, it's a step in the right direction and baby steps lead to the bigger ones, don't they? Yeah, I can add a, add a specific number to that, James, actually. Um, so when I started doing this, first thing I did was go through um, basically the past year and filter out any differently named lesson plans or um, or FTXs that have been run um, and merge ones where I thought, actually, those are the same one. They're just worded slightly differently or so on. And we've got, you know, at count of just over the past um just over the past 12 months, 53 different FTXs across all practice areas that were unique in in name. Yeah, so um, more. So even more, yeah. That's it's so yeah. There's a there's a there's a fair bit, but we just got to approach it as you say in baby steps. So Zuka, as soon as we're talking about lesson plans, did you have a Tafcast nine plan? Um, I was thinking of making one, but didn't have the time to do one. So just pretend there is one. Oh, that's always like the answer. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's really in role for me, isn't it? Um, something it to look really at meta. maybe is... <laughs> it's extremely meta. Uh, something to look at maybe is with all the changes and stuff uh, coming toward... Like if, if a lesson plan gets iterated, uh, who should be the person to speak to? Will it be the most experienced one in in an area? Will there be like a group of people that are... Uh, overseeing each different area, or is it more handled at uni staff level? Sorry, was that a question I zoned out? Completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, <laughs> wow. <laughs> in there, yeah. I feel like I was guarded to wake you up. I was, I was reading the the chat. Well, not the chat, but the lesson plan that you denied that exists to this. So I was just having a little read of that. And uh... <laughs> there, there is a checklist of sorts, not a lesson plan. Um, yeah. I don't know, like a table not of contents, really. marks, though. Oh, well, Adam. <laughs> so, sorry, what was the question? Uh, iterating on, F- on lesson plans. The version of be, them. Uh, yeah. Who signs it off? Like yeah. yeah. Who's, who's, who's the chief honcho? I think of that po- area. Yeah, I mean, the same way that SOP is. Lesson plans should be slightly less critical in that they all by default should follow SOP. So. Really, the level of authorization for it shouldn't need to be that high. I would have thought initially, probably we'll just keep it to Unistaff, but at some point we'll probably want to distribute that down the chain of command somewhat, um, especially for minor versions of the changes of, of lesson plans. Because if there's 53 of them, I don't really want to have to look at every single update. But I mean, if you look at what we're doing across the board, everywhere from less from loadouts to 
manual assignments and stuff we're really starting to distribute a lot of this into different areas of the coc so we'll probably do the same for lesson plans but to begin with at least like most things we'll probably leave it to the staff um and then work out how how best to do it going forward so as you talked about earlier we had if we had three lesson plans for per combat area that would be 30 lps and therefore let's say each takes an hour 30 man hours of work goes into lesson plans uh, how can people contribute? Who's the guy to talk to, or how can they get started? Um, for also me, unless there's, an, isn't, unless there's a uh, unless there's an official answer that I'm about to be corrected on, um, I think <laughs> the the main thing is that um, everyone can input into these, right? Um, I, what you can't do is go directly against standard operating procedure, like James said. But I also think there's a lot of content that's covered off within the FTXs that isn't what we would define as standard operating procedure. And just, uh, to give you an example, I think things like um, what's the quickest way of doing this standard operating procedure? So it's little top tricks, best practices, you know, cool little things that aren't necessarily written in documentation because they're not something where you would go, we always want somebody to use. Uh, control space rather than this or you know we always want someone to do that there's 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 things that you wouldn't necessarily want to standardize to that level by having a stand operating procedure written on it um but there are things where you know there's lots of best practices um like i didn't know until i did a structure clear in ftx and somebody else told me that control space which is the exact which was the thing that i gave uh, example i gave was use that and scroll wheel to slightly open doors to peek in like for until that point when I was breaching, it was just kick the door fully open. Um, and now we can include that in there as just a, here's a little nugget of information that we now pass out on every single structure clear in FTX to make sure everyone has that knowledge. Now that's not necessarily a stand operating procedure, but it, it does need to be there. So to come back to the, the question, really, I think the, um, <laughs> I think I'm, I think I'm pretty much at the point where I've forgotten the question. No, <laughs> <laughs> I think ramble, but I did have a point. The, the, question, I'm sure was, I remember it. the question was about how does people do people contribute? That's it. Most things are unit unit after relatively indirect, right? So uh, most people certainly know people go well. Actually, you know, uh, it's a bit all a bit mystical, isn't it? Like how how do decisions get made? But the reality is, when we're making decisions, we're using the data that we have that comes indirectly from people, right? So most things come from after action reports ultimately. Um, that's that is the direct feedback tool. So, like in an after action report, you're unlikely to say, "Oh, I really think we should change this setting." But what we're actually looking for is the trend of "Oh, um, of people saying it," because you have to be careful of the loud minority, right? So, you, if if you had a direct system where you could just essentially feedback into it, it's very easy for a very small group of people to change a procedure that probably doesn't need to be changed. So, we have to rely on the data when we make these changes, and and. I suppose the answer is just the same way that SOP is changed. You know, we identify a trend that we don't like or uh, something is, is repeating in a lot of after action reports across a lot of operations that indicates to us that either... A, um, and, and by the way, the thing with SOP is always, is the problem that the SOP exists and people aren't following it? Or is the problem that exists that the SOP does exist and people are following it, either SOP's wrong, or does the SOP not exist? And so... With lesson plans, it's much easier because lesson plans are based on SOP, so it just becomes, are we teaching that SOP in the right way? But in terms of contributing to it, I think just, um, you know, there are channels for it on Discord. It's a difficult one because it's not dedicated channels necessarily for each area, but 
um, the best thing to do is just to get started. You know, if you, the the best uh, contributions to SOP changes in the past have been people that have identified, you know, what actually I think this SOP's wrong, and rather than just say it's wrong, I'm actually going to write it the way I think it should be written, and then send that. Because the reality is, for a lot of us, if somebody sends me a minor comment about an alteration to, let's just say triage shop nothing's going to happen with that because out of the 750 tasks on the contribution center it's probably going to be on the bottom somewhere unless it's a particular high priority it's going to be very difficult to get something done so if you're really passionate about something just do it is the, is the simple answer and, and, and if it's going to be a massive time investment definitely ask first and like tim's working on the guide to unitaf at the moment and he was definitely right to ask about that first because you'd hate for someone to write an entire manual about unitaf and then it not be used anywhere so um, but yeah, approach the right people that you see instructing these things. Ask them what they think, and if it if it seems like a goer, just just get started and then and then share your progression. It's probably the easiest way. Yeah, in fact, that's the easiest way to contribute. Again, is by putting in a constructive AAR. That's literally the simplest thing you can do because again, we do read them, we do look at them, and the important difference between an operation and an FTX is, especially with the new lesson plans, is. Uh, it's it's a big problem to recreate the exact same circumstance in an operation from one up to another. So sometimes some AARs have to be really looked at on a on a like situa situational basis or a base case by case basis. With FTXs, you don't really have that, or to a lesser degree, I should say, because again, with the lesson plans, you have the structured from A to B, and you can really dig into those AARs and if again it's a reoccurring topic like oh this and this thing wasn't really talked about or we were kind of uh in the dark about how we're gonna do this or what what's the optimal thing to do here and then again if there's an AAR or multiple ARs that specify that you can make sure we're uh getting on the on the lesson plan iterating on it working on it because again it's 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 a big give and take especially with these things we put I these out a, yeah just like an inspector's comment i think yeah there's two two parts of the question like one is how do you actually get stuff done which i guess <laughs> is the point i was trying to make um and then there's the how do we actually decide what what we do with things and there's only a few direct like if you think about the way UNTAF works there's only a few direct ways to communicate one is the annual survey which the keys in the name is only done once a year so that, that's out there from a lot of things um AARs are about the only one. You've got your chain of command, but you know it's relatively ineffective for stuff other than uh, really important things that need to be done and need to be actioned because that's what it's there for. Um, and the suggestions channel on Discord, which you know um, has arrived at a number of really interesting features, but ARs are the key because um, if if you if you find yourself mentioning one thing in all your ARs and nothing gets done about it, then it's because you're probably the only one mentioning it, and ultimately that's how this organization runs right we're doing not i say what the majority want because that's factually incorrect but we're trying to spot trends and find fact you know facts within those and then make changes based on those and so my comment was more about how do you actually get stuff done so say if you're really passionate about something and you want to see that happen here um it's relatively ineffective to make the point that that should be changed and then do nothing about it because you're putting that on someone else's to-do list and as i pointed out the totality of unit to do list is quite large you can see it if you go to the contribution center so it's never it's essentially never going to get done kevin's been waiting two years for the logistics center to be up and running you know um <laughs> so so just uh, the point i was making is if you're really passionate about something then you're probably going to have to be involved in the doing of that thing or 
um, it will never arrive. Um, the lesson plans is the same. You know, it wasn't planned for this year. Scape just went and made it and, and put put the uh, the structure in place so that it could be brought to a release state. Um, and and so that's the only reason why we're talking about it now. You know, versus middle of next year. It would be really good if we had a lesson plan right now to uh, check where we currently are, because as as I'm looking on our on our checklist here, we've jumped up and down, up and down, up and down, but somehow we've still almost ticked everything. <laughs> we did. Yeah, we've not had a lot of questions, which I don't know if that's because people are just in FTXs listening on the slide. But yeah, if there are any questions, it doesn't have to like like I said, it doesn't have to be about what we uh, what we're talking about right now. It could be just anything random that you've thought about. Um, Tafcast is always a good opportunity to, to discuss a few different topics. Mm, not exactly, William. You can always pop questions in here. We do read them. Uh, and if there's an opportune time to look at them or to bring them up, of course we'll do it. So even if it's something small, put it in now and we'll just have a scroll through it at the end as well uh, just so we can have a recap of everything. So we might not He's answer meaning it. to say, please do send us on a tangent. Yes, y yes. Long story. <laughs> brevity, brevity. But people can join us up here as well if they've got a long, a long question. Um, but are we, are we, have we finished lesson plans? Um, I think so. I think we looked at. Have we finished the lesson that... plans part of the lesson plan? <laughs> Let's tick it off. Pretty sure there's uh, nothing else. If I, I was taking a cheeky look through. Um, well, we're still on the topic of FTXs then, and if the audience is keen to engage. Should we perhaps ask what a memorable was? Because we are looking at reformatting our FTX format, but we still had memorable and fantastic FTXs for the old one. So to me, that would be the first to know a navigation FTX where you got sent in yes. the jungle. Find your Classic. way. Yeah. And I, I think I think that example, while uh, while people are chucking stuff down, is a really really good one of the development that's come on on that one. Um, because mm -hmm. even though the last time we ran it didn't go entirely to plan, it was still even better than the first one in my view. Like with the you know, there's just the kind of thought and ingenuity and like the creativeness and ideation that had gone into it as to how we how we put into practice all the stuff that has been uh, has been learned. And it was I think a lot more engaging. Don't get me wrong, dropping in the jungle was uh, was pretty cool, but the kind of scavenger hunt element of like um, you know, we've got to go after the bananas. Is uh, is there... <laughs> how many rich tokens? It wasn't bananas, you see. It was uh, yellow curved tokens rich in potassium. Yellow curved tokens, yeah. Full, that's it. That's it. Um, I, I can't think of of all my theory FTXs. I can't think of a favourite. Um, but no, one I, one that always sticks out to me was. Um, a rotary FTX that Jay Wilson did. So it must have been about 18 months ago or so. And his he wanted to teach people auto orientation. So he got everyone into the same helicopter, like all of the attendees of the FTX into a helicopter. And he's basically saying, So so what I'm going to demonstrate now is how to to perform auto rotation landing. And the helicopter like went 14 foot under the ground and crashed and killed everyone. So <laughs> I never forget that one for that reason. I know that's not a particularly good FTX, but it's a memorable one. The one, uh, the one that always comes to mind for me, um, aside from the the difference between the um, first leadership one that I did and the most recent one with the quiz, which is 
the same content essentially, but with just a really snazzy outside the way outside the box way of doing it, which really made a, made a difference. Was um, one of the military operations in urban terrain um, a few months back, not the most recent one. I've tried to try to replicate it, but the uh, one that Johannes ran with a leadership element, just because of the sheer like overwhelming complexity of you know how you how you make these decisions um but it, it was so 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 heavy and lots of stuff going all at once and uh and and such such good amounts of pressure um to get a good result like that one will always stick with me as a very very cool lefty axe um that really really put the uh practices of mount theory into my head so another another funny one or memorable one for me was intake number one because ah. there was no inst- there was no instructor obviously because we were all new so we just took it in turns <laughs> check that, check that each other knew what they were doing. It was just was, it was, was, just like, was, it was like having, that. It was like having five recruits that nobody that was like a designated leader. So we would just sort of look at each other and go, "Yeah, that looks about right." Yeah, was it literally the Obama man giving himself a medal? Pretty much. <laughs> was like, was, yeah. was Squiddle on that one, by the way? I think, yeah, Squiddle would have been um, just trying to think any of the day oneers, basically. Squiddle. It wasn't really an intake then, it was more like a, a test thing. So we were doing like range based <laughs> testing, but it, it was still quite amusing nonetheless. Just uh, glossing down some of the questions, but to Vike's most recent point, yeah, that one will be memorable. Um, because I'm absolutely positive that. People are going to think that I was trying to keep that going because I need the uh, leadership FTX hours, um, but I absolutely promise that I wasn't. And uh, but it's 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 a good, it's definitely definitely a definitely a good example where we're all absolutely shattered after the amount of time that one took. Um, not all your memorable ones are necessarily good, and not all the good ones are necessarily memorable. I think it's a much harder. It's, it's, I wasn't expecting that question, but I think it's much easier to. Talk about ops and like most memorable ops, and it is FTXs. I don't think necessarily because FTXs are not memorable, but just because I don't know they're not as distinctive. Like an op has a story, doesn't it? And you remember the people you're with, whereas an FTX is a little bit more difficult to recall. I think. I think one that really stuck with me was it was a leadership one when I first learned like about plan ops and planning stuff on the fly, because yeah, James, I think you ran and you gave us like really tight. Uh, time limits to conduct a plan or a plan of movement and it was just like oh shit how, how are we going to do it and 90 percent of the time we had a lot it was just spent on bickering like do we go there do we do this do we do that and the last 30 seconds just oh, just draw some lines on it make up some bullshit story i'm, I'm sure he'll he'll eat it uh <laughs> right i know the one you're on about and it's really yeah. interesting because you you got like you got 12 people in four groups of three right and yeah. from my from my perspective, I've given you all the same tasks, all the same amount of time to do it, but the amount of progress that each team made was astronomically different. And even a team that had never platoon led a knot ever came up with a probably a slightly more viable plan quicker than one of the teams I hadn't. So it's all it's all about taking it seriously. And obviously, like, you know, some people probably thought they were gonna do it in much less time. But like you say, you can it's the point that we teach in all FTX, isn't it? Um I think I was listening to White Wolf's FTX the other day, and he said the same thing, which is, you know, and we always say like a, a bad plan, a bad plan made quickly is better than a good plan made, you know, in, 
in an hour or whatever. So it's a lot of times it's about making a decision and going with it and everyone following that. Um, and that, that was a good example of that FTX. But the, the whole point of an FTX is that if you can make the mistake in the FTX and not the op, then you've succeeded, right? Yeah, and sometimes the cock-ups are the ones that make it memorable and therefore associate the learning with the experience, and that's still a win. Exactly, exactly. Um, so do we want to get... There's a few questions. Do we want to go to those? Or, or does that fit in your plan, Zuka? Plan? Zuka has a plan. plan? Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, easy joke. Ha, ha, ha. Yes, I do have a plan. Uh, but yeah, sure, they fit okay, in. I mean, we, we, we don't have a hard timelet yet. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Johanna's asked, where do you see UNITF in two years? Actually, I'm not sure if that's a serious question because he also put afterwards five years. But for anyone that's listening that hasn't heard me uh, talk for hours on end about this before, uh, let's get comfortable. Um, oh, no. no, I mean, in, in, <laughs> it's, it's, seriously, in short, I think the, the thing is, I've said it in the last few podcasts, my belief at the moment is that the biggest, like our biggest problem is the game. So the only thing holding us back from doing the things that we maybe perhaps want to do is the engine in which we rely upon. Like we can develop things left, right and centre, but essentially we're now restricted by technology and have been for a long time. And really the only reason why we're not any bigger is because the the game is just essentially unplayable above 70 or 80 players. You know, we did that 118-man op and it was the worst rated op I think we've ever done. And you could maybe argue that you know, if you did that over and over again, maybe you get better at it. But I generally just don't think it's going to be enjoyable in this game engine. Um, and what I'm really looking for is where's the platform that's going to allow us to do 500 players? You know, is it going to be a 48-hour op that runs over the weekend and you have loads of all-bats coming in and out? You know, how's that going to look? But ultimately, what what we're working towards is a platform that's going to unlock some truly large scale maybe even global scale deployments and it's probably going to look massively different to what it looks like now but what we're trying to do with the systems that we're building is not build them specifically for armor but build them in such a way that in five years time to use Janice's time frame and nobody else will be able to compete with us in terms of how we organize because in in a world where you could simulate continent scale 500,000 players and do something really spectacular like that organizing people is going to be the biggest problem like how do you make sure everyone's there in the right place at the right time and bear in mind that it's still going to be no different you know you might only have three hours on a Sunday as you allocated time so how does that work so that's all we're really doing and I've always said the biggest threat to Unitaf would be a new game but it's also the biggest opportunity you know the, the migration from one game to another is always a massive problem and so all we're doing is building our systems in such a way to make that um as smooth as possible when the time comes because going from armor 2 to armor 3 was the most abrasive experience i think i've ever had um because you you know but but just trust me in the the way that we built unitaf we've done that in a way with with that experience in mind that unitaf is working towards a position where it would be multi-platform anyway and so it'll be relatively frictionless when the time comes. I dread to think when that time actually is, and I don't even know if it's going to be called Armour 4, but it's obviously coming at some point. Um, and in a way, I'm excited to see what it is. Yeah, I'm absolutely too. dreading the day. But at the end, again, if it then allows us to do big scale, like really big scale, combined arms, ah, oh, 
that w- would be amazing. But I, again, I already dread the day where I have to learn a new editor and new tools and all that stuff. But it, it is what it is. Really. And that seems to be squarely behind the horizon anyway. So should we look at what's ahead on the horizon? <laughs> what a segue! Isn't it? Come on. <laughs> nice! Uh, yeah. Let's look at what's in the future. The Armor 4, yeah, haha. Um, James showed us a few interesting statistics, especially in the activity side of things. Numbers, a lot of numbers. Uh, slots, slot supply, as you might know, and as we've t- already talked about earlier in today's uh, TAFCast, is uh, the unit size has been unlimited, but we're at a point now where we're happy with the amount of members we have. Uh, but alongside that, of course, comes a host of more, I, would, I wouldn't tell, like, call them problems, more challenges, as in how do we make everything balanced and uh, how do we give everyone a chance to deploy to how much time they, they want to spend on Unitab and all, this, all the things that we offer, really. And... Uh, I, Again, I see I'd, Joe. Joe's asked yeah. to follow up to his previous question, but maybe just pin that, and uh, we'll come back to it when we've when we do the sort of open question segment. So we don't forget. Oh, you can't pin in here apparently. Just make a note of. Oh, apparently, escape can. The Unitap permission system is working fully as intended. Uh, oh, oh, I can ping as well. Yeah. I, I can't okay. pin. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so we talked about it a little bit before we came on. I think I'll just sort of say what I said again, which is I think there's not been a month go by where I don't hear someone say, uh, oh, there's not enough slots. Uh, And yes, we've gone through like a a growth stage. So um, roster-wise, we were the last sort of six months, we've sat around 110, 120 rostered. And I always talk about it, just because you haven't got it on the roster doesn't mean that's the active force size. The active force size is usually about 10% smaller. The active force size today is the largest it's ever been sustained for for a, for quite a while, for eight, nine months. We're 130 rostered and around um, 100, 110 active force size. So everyone in that 110 people deployed in the last 30 days. Um, that's what how we calculate the active force size. So there's 20 people of this month, say, that haven't yet deployed. So they're either in the process of leaving or obviously in the process of joining. So that's around standard. But what that means is that the size of the active force has increased and the slot supply, we were looking at the graphs before, was it around around 800 slots per month that we, we're producing for the active force size of, of 100 people. So quick math tells you 800 slots, 100 people, eight times per person per month, which is where we get the, on average, each person goes to eight deployments a month from. But obviously there's some people, not naming any names, that do like 30 deployments a month. And there's some people that obviously do the minimum, which is which is one, which is also fine. And then everywhere in between. So I don't know the answer to the question in that we only do it statistics led, but the people that do say they can't find slots, it'd be interesting to know, you know, is that because the slots are on the weekend and they work the weekends? Is that because they're looking for pilot slots and, you know, there's just not very many of those obvious reasons. So it's a matter of perspective, but certainly from the top down, uh, yes, we've increased the force size to 130 and there's an intake tomorrow. So it will be about 135. 
But at the same time, this month alone, and we we're just looking at it before we came on to to the Tafcast, we're on track to produce around one thousand two hundred slots this month, which is an increase of four hundred slots from every other month this year. So the amount of slots has gone up drastically. And in fact, we're on track to do 60 deployments this month. And the most we've ever done is about 40. So the the stats do say otherwise, but obviously if that's still people's interpretation, then we have to look at individual cases to try and work out what the trends are that lead to that, uh, lead to that position. Yeah, Vike had a point here in chat. And Mixi, I saw your question. I'll get back to that in a minute. About... Um, non-infantry roles being too prevalent and the lower tier slots filling too quickly when higher tier ones don't. Could that be a shortage of FTX then that you don't get the practice hours to even get into a field and fill those niche non-co-infantry roles? Yeah, so um, quick disclaimer. None of this is confirmed. Um, but um, one of the things we are talking about uh, with the with that is um how do we give the sort of slightly newer people because there are a lot of them you know think about the growth so like a third of the force is probably going to be considered new at this point how do we get them slots where the problem might be and how do we try and funnel the more experienced members into the more experienced slots um we're, we're looking at different things like how can we manipulate fatigue maybe to give recruits even more of a benefit in in core infantry for example considering core infantry is actually a requirement of theirs to not be a recruit it probably makes sense that we find a way to either give them no fatigue at all in that area so that they always have priority um, but at the same time some recruits seem to end up in roles that probably wouldn't want them in like tank commanders and things like that so conversely if we buff that we may take away that ability by um you know increasing or decreasing their chance of being able to do that so th there's definitely things that we could do i think to help um specifically with with that but also the the difficulty i find is there's definitely not a lack of tier zero slots because we have stats on uh all that locks and what percentage of slots from different areas are left vacant and tier zero is definitely not one of them. So in the, I can't speak for before last month, but certainly looking at the last 30 days, there's been an abundance of tier zero slots that get left open at any particular point in the in the slotting process. So unless it's a time and day thing, like people aren't available for that particular time of day, the data doesn't match that at the moment. Segwaying perfectly into Mikti's question about perhaps planning to start deployments in different time ranges or larger time ranges, so that perhaps more people get the chance to Fill those lots. I think mm, you and me, Skull, waffled on about this bit when we did the prep for Tavcast. And I think one like concept we came up with was incorporating more uh, international RxUC members to schedule missions. Is that something that is like, I'm looking for the word for it, but like something that would be encouraged or? Yeah, so. We actually, it might be before a few of yours time, but some people listening may remember. So a little bit earlier on, maybe a year in, we did a really big push for the American time zone. So we actually had at that time, I think two two senior members of the org city that were American. Um, and so I think the reason why that we didn't continue with that was just because we need, as this is probably, probably obvious, you know, you need leadership in that, that are willing to play in that time zone. And, server administrators and things like that um obviously it's a relatively untapped 
um, thing for us. I suppose the question is, do you want to do it? The I, I think you one of you just said before we're quite happy with the member size. I've not not really got any target for the member size. The Unitaf's not about uh, the size of the deployments, right? It's about the frequency of them. So it doesn't really matter how many deployments there are because there's no there's no limit to the scale that you could go there's maybe questions about the culture of the organization how that would change if if you had people from that time zone and you essentially got two shifts you got the night shift and the day so there's maybe questions about that but in terms of the practical limitations there aren't any and it's something that we have tried to do in the past and essentially completely open to the irony with the american ops when we did them in the past is 90 percent of the people on those 2 a.m orbats were were european <laughs> <laughs> so we tend to do them on like a and I think the best way to approach it is to start doing them on a Friday and a Saturday at 2am or 1am and you know some people from the from Europe will go to those um, and it gives you sort of the best of both worlds but I have spoken to a few of the American and Canadian contingent obviously we had Cross as well who was Canadian but he's retired at the moment Um about doing it, and yeah, it requires an element of the OCOC, but it's definitely something we're interested in. And, um, I would, I would definitely love to explore, but it's a, it's a more of a manpower problem than it is anything else. You know, if we had the people to to run the ops and, and lead them in that time zone, then we would do it, wouldn't we? It's also a bit of a chicken and an egg issue, isn't it? Where you have to either have the framework and support to have more American people to fill those slots, but you also need American people. To make those missions for and yet yeah yeah i mean yeah, if, somebody we were, to start. If, if we were american which statistically you know a third of unitaf is like american north canadian uh, or i think it's a bit less than a third now um there's a there's a bigger benefit if you're american than if you're european because if you're american you can play the european ops in the middle of your day but if you're european not many of us will play the ops at two in the morning so there's less incentive for us to do that because if you think about it like i always say this the reason why we have loads of great ideas, but we don't do a lot of them. It's because there's a priority list. And generally, I'm only ever working on the most high priority stuff, and as are most people. And so what, what's the benefit to you, Zuka, White Wolf, and everyone listening to this now, if we did ops at two in the morning? Um, there probably is a, a benefit down the road, or, or we'll have more mission makers and, and you know, maybe some people will attend those ops, and then maybe, maybe the American players will make ops at, at their afternoon time, which actually turns out to be European time, so if you get me, so maybe there is a, a benefit to it, but um, you know, we're open to it, I suppose, is the simple answer. Yeah, there was also a day a few weeks ago where we had two or perhaps even three deployments back to back that ended at, I don't know, midnight, one o'clock in the morning, and they all filled pretty much. The The first one started about an hour earlier, if I remember right, than we usually do at eight midweek, at eight my time. And that was filled. The one after was filled, and the one after that was filled. Unless I misremember. So could it be that we could also start earlier, give more people a chance to join from the European time zone, like Mixie there, who might want to start an hour or two earlier, and then continue out into the night? If we have the mission for it, I think. I think. Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, is the short answer. I mean, because any the the thing is, our system doesn't tell you what time to do it. I mean, 
anyone could schedule any deployment at any time they like. Like, I mean, I couldn't promise you that if you put me all back in for 4am, it'll fill. But if you put it in for 7pm, I know it will. Um, there's no there's no law that says you, can, you can't, can't do that. If you look at some of Kevin's uh, previous FTXs, yeah. some of them he did at like weekend days, like 12am, 10am. Just mm-hmm. get a quick quick FTX in, start your day <laughs> with some support engineering and then go about your Saturday or Sunday or whatever. And I uh, remember the Americans joined those too. Yes. And uh, some people have problems uh, getting up or like waking up on time. Uh, me, me being one of them. <laughs> I remember. So just, just this question from Mixie. So I'm on Sunday, right? Is the question more about running a four-hour deployment from five till nine is that the question or is the question more about just the varied start time just the variance of start time i think for usual two and a half three hour deployments so yeah. if mixie got five hours five hours, five hours of sleep after a probably three three and a half hour intake and that ends at probably midnight or 1 a.m for him can we bring that forward by an hour or two yeah i don't see why not i think i think part of it is just Look, as I mentioned, there's no policy or standing order, is there, that says you, you have to put an op at a specific time. So I think it's more just force of habit. Yeah, um, convention. Yeah, you, you know, we we do most of our deployments at this time, so therefore we'll do them. But in reality, as you pointed out, some people do FTSs at weird and wonderful times, and, and in reality, they can sort of do what they want. And maybe it's just a case of, we, well, we have an NCA meeting this week, don't we? So maybe it's just a case of uh, reiterating that. Um, for the, for the people that are doing the scheduling. Cool. We've got a question from Ross, which is, uh, what's our current position or your current position on more varied RBATs, for example, or in essence, more closely emulating the, the countries we play in? I think I'll take a bit of steam out of you and already say that we already have SOP in place for a lot of things, and deviating too much from it is not something we want to do. And you got to keep in mind, if you want to have a purely air-based RBAT, why not go play something like DCS? Or if you want to just focus on tanks, purely tanks, why not go play something like Warfunder or something along the lines of that? We always try to keep our mind the focus with its combined uh, infantry and all of these supporting assets. Because I that's what's been wor- working best for me as a mission maker or as a, as a, as a field leader. And I think, James, you'll have, of course, your points on it as well. And please stop me if I'm saying anything wrong here. But I think that's what we want to focus on. I I don't know if I slightly disagree with what you said or the way you said it, but... um, Probably the way I said it. (laughs) So so I would disagree with, like, if you like flying, go play DCS. I've tried to drop... Well, I mean, you're welcome to go play DCS. But if you want to play purely air or bats in armor, okay, it probably wouldn't be purely air. I think we have done that before. I've dropped a few hints on the last few TAF casts about saying to people, like, why don't you make ops that are like have lots of aircraft on and like force, you know, taxi P parties or whatever? Like, there's nothing stopping people doing that yet. It only gets done relatively infrequently. So I, I've nothing against the sort of and I know that's not what Ross is saying when he's talking about varied in nation, but if we talk about varied orbats in general, um, there's no reason why you can't have, you know, your recon team on the ground and some artillery and that's the mission. Or you can have your I think we did that 
Typhoon one where we had like do we have like six fixed wing aircraft and then we had the tactical air control party as well like there's no reason why you can't do that and they're relatively easy all bats to do and, and it was a completely different mission actually when you think about it and I think they're great because you get experience doing what you need to do there and so when you actually apply those same crews to an op that has infantry the chance of um, the coordination going a lot better is higher right so I, I've no issue with any of those I think those sort of orbats are infrequent because they're not the standard and less people tend to plan them but that doesn't mean that people couldn't if they if they did you know um the point that zuka raised that i think is correct to say is that the uh, attitude here is the orbat can be as diverse as you want so long as it's still in accordance with sop so if we started playing, we're not going to, but if we just started playing as insurgents, for example, it would be very difficult to apply our standard operating procedures if we were trying to emulate insurgents because the whole point about um, that type of warfare or asymmetrical warfare is, is, has no, it's not applicable to our SOP, right? So we couldn't apply our SOP and start doing formations. Things. It just wouldn't work when you're fighting against a much tougher power. As a weaker one, you need to use those sort of tactics differently. So... The general rule is our SOP doesn't change. Like our SOP is the same no matter the deployment and has to be because we can't expect people to learn 13 different SOPs for different things. So as long as the deployment, the orbit and the execution of it falls within current standard operating procedures, then it doesn't really matter what the orbit is or how it's laid out. The tactics remain the same. So if we're playing as British, we still use our tactics, which are ultimately based on US Army SOP because there is only one SOP you know, in real life, you only have to learn one SOP depending on what branch you're in, and it would probably be relatively impractical if you had to learn three or four. And we're talking about here where it's, you know, this is not our profession. This is something that we do on the side. So um, diverse orbats, yes. Diverse from nationalities, yeah. Maybe tweaking the orbat based on that nation and maybe how that nation would deploy their orbats. But so long as it's within SOP and workable with SOP, because if you change the orbat beyond SOP, the SOP becomes ineffective and therefore, you know, you end up with those other issues. Yeah, it would be a completely different experience to be in a British section where the section commander is embedded with the first team, whereas we have a squad lead at the top being a bit, uh, not detached, but separate from the fire teams. And, right. and, okay. and, yeah. and that's the perfect example, isn't it? Because yeah. you, your experienced leader, because you're experienced with that system and the people are experienced in following under that system. And so whilst it'd be great to go play another nation and maybe we'll have slightly different weapons and maybe the teams will be bigger or smaller, to change the whole system would require full, out, full adaptation and then certain procedures in the SOP would no longer be effective or practicable because of the way that the team's laid out. So um, it's important. Would be would be interesting to hear about uh, how we employ weapons, though. In one one of the examples that came out recently was the way we employ the medium AT in the British forces on our orbats, where it's an N law, where the L is quite literally for light, and they're the current light launcher for an infantry section. So, as I was told, I think it was because we need a weapon to fill the mat slot, but the British simply don't have a medium AT system. They'd have an end law as a light one and the javelin as a heavy one or a tow or whatever. Ah, mm. oh, if you also look at this in this... the World War II ones, for example, that also touches a bit on what Ross has with embedded section commanders or like big squads or infantry teams. Mm -hmm. But we've also ran upon the same thing there, where, for example, you didn't really have automatic riflemen in in 
like Nam or in uh, in uh, World War Two, really, because you had your machine gunner. And <laughs> until now, we've only really like we found a way around it, which is implementing medium machine gunners instead of an uh, an AR, or just doing some some <laughs> questionable stuff like taking the front sights off the M60s in Vietnam, which is now fixed, by the way. Uh, but it, it's always a bit of a fumble, isn't it, James? Yeah. I, I, yeah, that's definitely a balancing act. But I think uh, the, we had the same problem with Germany as well. And uh, their heavy tank, AT is on like a tripod. Um, so there's all sorts of these considerations. But the difficulty is it's not just about technically what classification is that. The end law is light. But it's also about, well, if there is no light slot, where do the entry-level people go? So... I think when we did the first iteration of the Eichel bats in Germany, there was not a single tier zero slot in the fire team, so we had to rehash, you know, the whole thing. So, um, yeah, I think that probably deviated from the question a little bit, but the point is, it's it's a challenge. Um, but we're essentially what we're trying to do is as much as possible is, ad- is adapt what we're doing to our standard procedures and build on those procedures to accommodate. Um, and and somebody raised World War Two. And I suppose to some extent to Vietnam, where we do operate the sort of the more section system. And I think it's really interesting because perhaps we will down the line maybe need to put a historical SOP in to be applied to those circumstances. Because there's definitely some unique tactics and procedures that that differ for that. But it's always really interesting watching people in the World War II deployments because the, the instinct that you have you know you don't have a radio so it's very much on individual instinct and one of the things i love about doing them is that people get better at communicating like far too much communication in my opinion happens on the radio in, in our conventional operations and what i love to see about world war ii is people actually thinking about their position in relation to the other people in their team and how they communicate together one great thing that i always see pop up in uh these historical ones where you don't have many radios is the just this relaying of information so just this echoing of if someone hears a call out, he just calls it back out and it just goes down the chain until someone like 50 meters to my east is is just retelling it. And you just got this big game of telephone going on. It's just absolutely yeah. nice well, to see. A funny story about that without naming names coming out of... Uh coming out of um, the last um, Saturday's op, sorry, the, the last World War Two, which seemed to go really well, and I was glad. I think it was the second highest rated um, World War Two op. Is, um, I was watching it unfold, obviously, as Game Master, and um, there was this huge mass chaos. Well, not, not huge compared to the to the last, um, the, the, the one before Typhoon. it. But, uh, uh. Um, no, yeah, the World War Two before this one, the part one. But... Um, it wasn't huge, but the combat medical team was still sat at base talking about what they were doing at the weekend or something. And <laughs> I really related to that because World War Two is, as a commander, it's so peaceful because there's so much going wrong around you, but you just don't know about it. So certainly as a platoon commander, because the comms is so slow and, and stuff, you know, like you say, there's a, a, a mass cut situation and they've got to sort of like shout it to each other until they reach someone that's got a radio that can actually radio it up. So the platoon commander in that case was completely oblivious to it, as were a lot of other people. It's just really interesting to watch. Whereas, you know, in our conventional ops, communication is generally very fast and the picture is much easier. Um, but but I sometimes prefer it. You know, I like I like to the peacefulness of what world war ii is so strange because it's like it's really peaceful to lead 
not in all roles. Like, I can imagine a squad meeting is probably, probably quite stressful. But so, <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. Screaming. <laughs> Certainly as a platoon leader, like it's really chaotic around you, but it's very internally peaceful because it's so slow paced and there's not, there's not a lot of radio traffic. So it's really interesting. I think also a great example is not having any type of blue for tracking. Because if, if you look at Vietnam ops, actually having to open up your map, think about, oh shit, what's the closest rock to me and what can I use in relation to where the hell am I in the middle of this jungle? It's just fairly different, like a completely different way of playing because you really get used to your way of squad leading, platoon leading, fire team leading, and that just completely throws you for a loop and it's just really refreshing. At, at least to me it is. Personally, I love that challenge. Like, yeah. when you, you take it for you take your your C tab or your GPS for granted, like all of the time until you do a World War Two, and then you're like, "Where the hell in this jungle am I?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll go north until we hit the road, and um, then we'll know where we are. I guess is yeah, the answer. <laughs> it's an in, such an interesting topic because uh, even on the part one of the current. Um, series of the the ops that we're doing in World War Two, like one of the squads ended up in the complete wrong place, and they didn't know they were in the wrong place. The the platoon leader didn't know they were in the wrong. You know, we haven't got GPS or C tab, and so it's this sort of like domino effect of, oh, are you at the the tower yet? What tower? We're in like a fucking jungle or something. Have you passed the lake? What lake? I never saw it. So, land navigation is so important. And when you actually do get lost, it's very difficult to work out where you're actually going to be. Oh, yeah, we've got some agreement. <laughs> um, you know, I, I love things like Brimstone where, you know, we've got drones and everything. We've got all the information because I think it's just you can have these perfect ops where, you know, everyone can make the right decisions and things. But World War II does teach you a lot about how much we rely on technology uh, in our operations to, to, to make things work. Um, and one of the most interesting experiments we did, I think, was very early on in UNITAF, uh, I took GPSs away from absolutely everyone apart from, I think it was fire team moves and above. And what I noticed when I was playing as a rifleman was how much more aware of my surroundings I was. So like, rather than just have that sort of thing, I can just check my GPS and I know exactly where I am. Like, I was paying more attention to that hill there and that there because I knew I needed them as reference points. And obviously, that's not saying that we do now as much as I'd probably love to take it away from everyone again. But sometimes the absence of that thing can make you better at that thing. Um, a reliance on technology is not always a good thing. Yeah, quite early on when I, I think when I first started leading in leading in Unitaf, I wasn't in the habit of using CTAB because I made do without it before, and I got kind of. I don't want to say yelled at, but I got feedback to open it more and have it open on my on my on my screen as I move, so I get to be in line and parallel with the other team as much as possible. And I, my my attitude on it is, I think it depends on your role, right? I don't think squad leaders should be super reliant on technology because I see it as a point of contact role you've got to be focused on what's in front of your eyes, not what's yeah. on the screen. Um, that's the job of the platoon leader. And if you feel like you need to do that, then I think the platoon leader is probably not doing their job properly. Um, but at the same time, Unitaf's about choice. And I think what we all, we have started doing with campaigns and we'll continue to do is rather than making a blanket change to say, 
oh, you don't have GPS. Certain campaigns will differ in the technology employed. You know, Brimstone, you know, you threw, we threw the kitchen sink at that. Drones, planes, patches, everything, you know. But there'll be a campaign coming where there's no sites and no GPS, for example. And that'll be a different experience. So modern warfare, not quite historical, but... James, can we talk with... about that one? <laughs> are, are, you, are, are you ready to talk about that one? Because that would really... Which one you're talking about. Ah, uh, you know, lots of air, lots of tanks. Is it got sand in it? Yeah. It's a Does bit... it begin with a D? <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. give me the D. Capital D at the start. And Wait. then is the second word begin with an S? Yeah. Okay. Nintendo DS, we're all just going to be playing on a port of Arma. On, on well, the there, so there is a Desert Storm campaign coming. Ta-ta, there is this. And there is also... What is that? That we are not confirmed. Desert Storm is confirmed. It's not going to be a particularly long campaign. Um, but obviously, it's, you know, we're talking sort of early 90s and around that area, so the equipment difference will be... You know, there will be one. Um with a heavy focus on main battle tanks and infantry, specifically in that one. Um, and there is also some people working on a future, slightly more future. The irony with Armour 3 is when it came out, everything in it was very futuristic and 20 years in the future, but it's been that fucking long since it came out that it's basically, by the time Armour 4 comes out, Armour 3 will be present day. <laughs> um, so we are looking at doing some stuff with armor three as intended so so not necessarily vanilla but but pretty much um so that that's early stages though and nothing is set in stone with that but it's got a name and it's got a campaign plan and so within the next few weeks it might have some info on that but certainly at the moment go back to the slot supply even though we've got something crazy like eight or nine campaigns active you know we are having to roll out some more because just the sheer number of operations is just not high enough um, but so yeah, definitely something Cold War coming and um, uh, around Desert Storm and also something that's a few years ahead also on the way. Now that's a massive teaser. I'm, I'm not going to talk about Dunk's campaign idea then. Because he's I mean, not in here. Feel free. Oh, he, he's not here, so. so oh, he wouldn't even or know, so I couldn't talk about it. Do it and take the credit. Sorted. <laughs> well, it's already too late for that well, one thing that I can guarantee about something like a Desert Storm campaign is people will still ask where all of the vehicles are with all the extra armour that didn't get invented till 10 years later <laughs> you see that's actually a concept I have for Sapphire as well like only really higher up slots or higher up uh, leadership having magnified sites kind of said like we we tried to in implement it didn't we with uh having everyone start with a red dot but what i see now most of the time is just people pick the acogs because they know the acogs they pick their su-320s because they know them and they're just gucci sites so i think we've murdered that question absolutely yeah so that's what tafcast is all about <laughs> this um, the section on what even was the question <laughs> uh more appropriate or bats to yeah. different nationalities. I think we're we still on thing. that question. Right. If yes. There's, no, yeah. there's no, no questions since that one. So if you go back to your lesson plan. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we've already talked about this one. Uh, oh, yeah. Let's look at. There's a big one. A, yeah. Pretty big event we had. And that has. Well, the first round of it has concluded, I'd say. Second yeah. And I think we can coming. pretty safely welcome Nico to the Orc COC. 
Yeah, because yeah. that's what it's about. We're going to be Again. looking at the astronomical like participation in yeah uh, the promotion of a of a corporal. It oh yeah, it's still corporal, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and the selection progress that was behind it, and that was just absolutely astronomical. We had like what twelve participants, eleven, even yeah, more. eleven nominees. Yeah, eleven nominees. Yeah, that's even already taken out a few here and there. It was just absolutely just. Yeah, I think every yeah, every w- troops chat was just flooded with. Oh, just. I mean, if, if you're not familiar guy? with the selection process, well, I can't remember if. I mean, that was a twelve from the actual selection, but some people may have applied, but then not even been in, in that. I don't know um, for sure if any troops held anyone back, but it could be that there was more than twelve. Generally, we try and encourage troops not not to put an entire list of people forward. So, um, but it's good. I mean. Um, you know, most selections in the past have been, well, they've certainly been smaller than that, sort of half the size. I think that's probably indicative of obviously a growing force size, but also we've got more experienced people joining, so they're not new to armor, so they've maybe got the confidence to to go straight to a leadership. And in fact, a lot, if you look at a lot of the Org COC, like m- many of you in this channel and also around the Org COC, join the Org COC very early, you know, like within 30 or 60 days of joining. And it's generally because the really good promising people you know you can identify them very quickly but um uh, you know, james to, yeah i think the reason i got promoted was because i can play a convincing woman in civ rp so uh thank you for that <laughs> yeah i mean but the standards have gone up since then i think the one of the comments from the org coc after this selection was just a, a self-reflection of <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so glad like i joined a year ago and not now cause... Yeah. yeah back when zuka was promoted the standards were lower yeah um, pro- hey it's, i do it's... carry my weight we, and we do, i didn't want to mention your go i think it was <laughs> difficult from the context of it. a lot of people said to me you know actually i'd like the all f- five of these people you know um and when you've got to pick one person out of five that's difficult but you've got to pick one person out of 12 i mean that's even more difficult so um yeah it's great to see so many people interested because that that's i mean one one of the candidates asked me the other day um i think in an intake or an induction you know do, do you struggle with leadership you know because um in a, in a lot of i guess communities similar to ours maybe that's an issue a bottleneck you know not having the leadership but it seems that we've got a lot of people interested and willing to step forward which is is great a great problem if you like to have yeah with some exception exceptions recently we actually had a bottleneck for leadership slots it seemed like where so many of the gfdo candidates and even the listed who've made the tiers to take leadership slots now are taking them and uh, we had a bit of a bottleneck in the gfdo process which i think we can now mention is being automated to alleviate that a bit isn't it yeah so i think we can exclusively reveal um Tafcast exclusive. Yeah, so it's it's actually intentional. So some some people may notice that more non NCOs have led like in the last three months, but that's actually intentional. So we've gone from maintaining two corporals on the um, on the session level to actually reducing it back down to one. But actually, it's about half and half now. Now it's not a steadfast rule because people always say, "Oh, well, why has that session got two corporals and that one's got one?" There's a percentage of the active force that. I'm trying to maintain as NCOs, right? So if the active force grows, then the number of NCOs will grow, but it's not necessarily a hard, fast rule. 
Um, because obviously, if you haven't got the right candidates anyway, then you shouldn't bring them on. Not that that's the problem that we have at the moment. Um, but yeah, so what, the reason why we reduced it is because we, we actually want those GFTO, GFTO roles to be filled by non-NCOs, right? Because that's the learning, that's the proving ground, isn't it, essentially? So the intention by just slightly reducing the number of NCOs as a percentage of the active forces, if we can have all GFTO roles filled by non-NCOs, then ideally that's where the proving ground is. So that was intentional and that seems to be going you know relatively well the problem would be if we need non-ncos to squad lead that's not desirable and obviously if that started to happen then we would maybe look at the increase in the number of ncos and or just making sure that the active ncos were pulling their weight in that sense um but yeah so the, the next step is the automation of the gftl process so we've had a pretty robust process in in for about six months now and prior to that it was I mean, I don't even know how it worked. I think it was just first come, first serve. And so like most things, we've got a bit of a proof of concept now. And I think we've probably we've probably got the rules down enough now to know how the decisions are made about who goes into a GFTL role. So now we can automate that process, which will be the next thing that we do. So, um, so yeah, hopefully before Christmas, because I don't want to spend Christmas assigning people to GFTL slots. So let's, let's say before Christmas. Oh, is that confirmed or is that... I'd say, I'd say that's confirmed. Is that a commitment? Yeah. So oh, we've got we're a record. still just trying to work out the process for it, but I'm pretty sure, um, you know, we've added this sort of notify me of up-tiering on this orbit toggle. I think we'll yeah. probably beef that out into its own box where it's like, would you like to go to this? This might sound slightly shit, so we'll definitely make it sound better by the time it comes out, but... but there, there should be more like a more preference area for that op. So like we want to know, would you go to it if there were slots? Like that's something that we'd be interested in knowing. Do you want to be a JFTL if one's available? Do you, you know? Do you want to be notified of tiering? So we'll beef that box out and then it'll do a multi multitude of things, right? Um, and the JFTL process will work dead simply. It'll just be during the pre-slotting phase, which is 24 hours before release, those that register to JFTL will be put into a bucket and then the system will decide on release and then automatically assign them. So it's using the same rules that we use when we make the decision. How how much have they JFTL'd? Is there any reason they shouldn't be JFTLing reprimands or whatever? And then it will just automatically assign them to JFTL slots and it will be done on release. So they'll know on release whether they've got it or not. And therefore, if they didn't get it, they'll, they can slot into a normal slot. Um, so because it's just automatic and instant, um, it will just be much more effective. And the notification will probably go about just the same way that we're now doing with the Discord bot, who's DMing us, as we're figuring out more and more of the Discord API, as you talked about earlier. It's beautiful, we, isn't it? It people, is. People, people thought muting the server was going to get away, get, get UNITAF no. off their back, but now we no. can get into your DMs. So. And Rick You signed up for this. It's your, it's your B. But in serious, so my rule with the DMs, as much as... I'd love to just DM people all the time because they seem to be a lot more responsive is we'll probably keep it to user action. So if you've proactively done something that, that we need to inform you about, then we'll send you a DM. But if you haven't, then it'll be a Discord uh, a server notification because I think conscious not to overdo the um, overdo the DMs. Yeah, if such you, as... The server, you've probably done it for a reason. Yeah, such as putting a, putting a name in the hat for JFTL or being manually assigned to an instructor or that's be the sort of thing that you're going to be dm for exactly yeah yeah anyone that's been manually assigned would have had a dm to say 
you know you've been manually assigned and you need to know that because if you've got no showed for example then uh you know you need to know that you've been slotted oh Giannis has a point yeah, yeah that's a good one DM, dm about the mission uh missing aar after three days yeah to be fair that is on my list <laughs> good <laughs> No, don't make it three hours. I want to go to bed after missions. See, if I'm a field leader and it's been three days, I generally send you a DM anyway. So if I can automate that, then even better. I mean, yeah, if you want to deploy on the next op, you'll have to fill out your AR anyway. But for some less active people, that might take a while. Yeah, weak at most, I'd say, for, for most people. Yeah. Um. Right, let's take a look at our lovely old lesson plan over here again. Look at that, another segue. We were just talking about AARs, and there's that master after action report. (laughs) (laughs) Say planning. There it is. (laughs) I think think we only really have a status update on it, don't we? Yeah, so actually the spades aren't in the ground on that yet, but it's a relatively small uh, development-wise. Yeah, so... definitely before christmas um for those that aren't familiar with it it's essentially at the moment you can see the you can see the rating of an op and it and actually we've beefed out the um the um, mvp pings now to have have more information it tells you like how how the op was rated compared to all other operations and and in that campaign Uh, but we really need to beef that out so that we can not only look at campaign scores so like how does brimstone compare to sapphire sapphire compared to isis for example and and to some extent something that i actually do but it's not public at the moment is how do different gms compare and different field leaders compare and that that's also something that is interesting to look at um but the specifically with master afternoon reports is what is the actual learning from that op every single deployment that we do whether it's an ftx or 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 an operation you can come out of that and from the overall debrief there'll be a summary of um, the FPS was bad, the all battle was wrong, or the plan was wrong, or whatever the combination of things is. Um, but we don't, you know, we don't make those public, and so it's difficult for people to learn from those, or for people to identify that actually we know what the problem is. So um, that, that's the purpose of the master after after action reports. Is it, rather than publishing everyone's individual comments, is there'll be a summary published um, that summarizes what we think the the learnings from that deployment were, what went well, what didn't go well. Um, so yeah, it'll be a really interesting thing to see, and I think something that certainly will help me as someone that used to, like I used to, you know, two years ago I used to read every after action report that came in for every single deployment, and then I could sort of keep an eye on how things were going, and if I saw something I was worried about, I'd sort of mention it to someone. But that's sort of impossible now. You know, it's just too many of them. You know, um, over twelve hundred after action reports a month, um, or between eight hundred. 1200 it is a little bit difficult to keep up with so being able to read the summaries will mean that we can keep keep on top of how things went um and, and follow up from there yeah vike is asking if the ars are going to be filtered out for private information or identifying information but i think the way we're going about it is the master aar still going to be written by somebody and they're not just being automated automatically yeah yeah exactly done to, yeah. to be published yeah, exactly that. The only people that can read your after action reports and you should know already is the person that physically led you in that op, the field leader and the senior game master, and by extension, your COC. So you shouldn't really be naming particular people in your ARs anyway. Um, you should probably go to your COC with that instead if you if you need to mention specific people. 
generally if you're if you're saying oh x person did a great job i think that's fine but if you've got maybe a concern about someone you should probably go to your coc is probably a more effective way of doing it um and obviously you can see your own after action reports now in in uh, in your account settings um but if you do mention specific things like that in your ARs, um, there is actually a, a new system that allows the person reading it to flag it because it's an anonymous and they can't see who wrote it. Um, if you write something like, I don't know, uh, we had one recently. Uh, no, I probably shouldn't talk about the specifics of it. But there was, there was some something recently that was like a, a breach of code of conduct and it was in an AR and they can't see that you wrote it. But what they can do is flag it and what that does is it it goes then through my COC, so it sends that to the person that does know who you are in your COC and says, this AR's been flagged, can you follow up on it? Uh, which has worked really well for, for little instances like that. Cool. I think that's our lesson plan done. And if we've got the time for it, we can follow on with questions for the crowd. Indeed. Um, uh, I'll have a scroll through if we have missed any questions or if you have any, any ones that are, that are completely burning, you well, want to get have, out there. If Giannis yeah. is still awake, uh, he did have, <laughs> uh, he did want to expound on his, uh, prior question, didn't he? So we could always start with that one. Uh, I think he's raising his hand and he has been for a while. So if you want to bring him on, yeah, he probably lost circulation to it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if he's awake. And if anyone else does have any any questions, um, feel free nope. to type them or you can come up and ask them. Like it, the doesn't ha doesn't have to be about this particular Tafcast. It's always a good opportunity to just ask questions. Does this mean I'm allowed to take down my hat now, James? You can ever so sorry. Oh, thank you. If, if you Ow. can. <laughs> um, no, my, like, my point of the question was that I wanted to ask you, how do you see us in like a year or two like how do you want to develop more than just the roadmap and so on like where where do you want us to take this in arma and with the amount of people we are getting applications from and that we could really increase the force size but we can't because of arma like what do we do inside of arma before a magical new game appears yeah so like all things stay in the same essentially and um... In all honesty, when we started Unitaf, I thought max 18 months. Like, I didn't think we'd be sat here now. <laughs> We've still not an announcement about anything technologically different. Because if you think about a lot of things concept-wise about Unitaf, they are sort of leaning towards bigger scale. Um, but the answer to the question, I think, is... Um, we, we've stopped developing anything that's specific to Armour, Armour 3 at least, for the time being, because I was worried about the time investment into... You think about our mod and the way that it integrates and loads the loadouts and stuff. I'm hesitant to, to spend a lot of man-hours doing things that are very Armour 3 specific, because to go back to that graph that someone posted about how much time do you invest in something and how much time does it save you, I'm worried that if we spend too much time and stuff like that, you know, it will. So what what you probably see from the roadmap is that we're spending a lot of time on developing things that aren't necessarily related to Armour, but improve our um, organisation or our ability to execute what we're doing. So master after action reports, lesson plans, these are all things that actually don't really have anything to do with Armour whatsoever. Um, but help us with our organisation of it and getting better at it. 
Um, and the second part is that as we get better at these things, and over time we've, in we've a lot of the time we've had a skull was talking about we've had a unit cap, so we've capped unit after X size, and gradually we're starting to release that thing and then just see what happens. Um, and so I think the answer to the question is that we'll continue to improve the things that we've already got, do the things that we said we were going to do, um, logistics, vehicles, and all that things like that, things that will take us into other games. But in terms of actual armor itself, I think I think the time zones thing is a really interesting one. I think it's going to be more about frequency, and if you increase the frequency, then it means you know we, we went through a phase of doing like two sixty man deployments a week, and I think we're probably not right back there yet. We tend to be doing one sixty to seventy, and lots of smaller ones, which is fine. But I think we'll probably get back to that, and it will just be more frequency and and more size, and so it's not about the same people playing more it's about um, more people playing less frequent frequently uh, meeting more people and trying to bring up the the other biggest focus at the moment is it's fine that we're going to grow and increase the force size by 20 percent in a, in, a, in a month and then double the amount of activity which is probably what's going to happen this month versus october but at the same time we have to get those people involved right it's not a very nice way to put it but i always say to people like it's no good if people join and they're net leeches. Unitaph only works if everyone contributes. And one of the things that we're most proud of is that so many people contribute to making it work, right? Unitaph two years ago got to a point where it's impossible that I could, I always say I do very little and I couldn't make it work to the level it works now on my own. It's physically impossible. It takes a lot of people to, to make this machine tick. And it's all about now, how do we make the barrier of entry um, to people like the people listening to this, to people that have only just joined in the last month, how do we get them involved in mission making, in writing FTXs, in SOP, in running operations, whatever it is that makes the organisation tick? How do we get them involved? And but at the same time, essentially, what my job is is keeping the standards at the same because it's no good that we do that and we do a hundred operations a week and the quality is shit. Um, Unitaf has a you know we've always been quality first and that's something that we're always keen to maintain. So. Um, that's all I see my role as, and as staff, that's what we're trying to do. And you'll see it on the roadmap. It's twofold. It's yes, we want to grow the organisation so that it's never stale. It's never at a stalemate. It's always growing. It's always energetic and active. But at the same time, maintain the standards of what we actually set out to do when we started. And on the very flip side, constantly, not necessarily automating things, but making it so that it's not requiring input from me. You know. If, if something still requires my input or my decision making, it's not necessarily because I'm the only one that knows the answer. It's because I've got an expectation of how something should be done from maybe a quality or a standards perspective. And to go back to the JFTL thing, uh, it's not that I need to decide who the JFTL is. It's that I want to make sure that a standard's enforced. And if I can teach the computer to decide who the JFTL should be, then I'm going to do that. Um, and so I think there's a lot more we can do with the platform we've got, but I just wish... That by the time we get there, hopefully we'll. Yeah, I think by the time we get to whatever the next platform is, we'll be much bigger and probably more active than we are now. If, I don't know if that answers your question. Um, uh, not really, but I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, feel free to ask a more specific one. But no, no I meant like, like it, it, you. You answered the question in the same way you answered my original question: the five-year plan. It's like. I'm more like, how are we going to scale to more people? Because as you said, we have been uni uh, 
member cap for a long time, and we still are. And every time we have expanded massively in a short time, it hasn't worked out very well, and we lost a lot of people because of it. And I'm wondering why, no, how are we going to scale a lot bigger to accommodate the new game? Within Arma, that's more a specific way of uh, asking the question. What's... So, so I think I think, I, think what... I have a follow-on actually that might direct it a bit more. If I'm mm. yeah, go I'm for good it. to. Uh, so we talked earlier, or well, we talked about the frequency of missions, and earlier we talked about uh, some variance in the start of deployment times. And we c- collect a lot of data, but we can't really collate anything that doesn't happen, as it were. So could there be a system internally where we select preferences for when we are able to do missions best. And once we have that data, we can do more and more missions in these time slots. She agrees. And, <laughs> and yeah, I, see, that way. I, I see that's been suggested. And there's a lot of talk about beefing out the um, preferences area of the site with, with much more than just role preferences, like you say, time preferences, but also things like uh, rolling in the annual survey into there and things like that. Um, to, to Johannes's question, I think with a lot of army units, the thing is, if you, you know, we're certainly, I, I don't know specifically because to be honest, I don't pay much attention to the wider community, but I'd be willing to say we're probably in the top 10 in terms of size versus activity. Even the units that are much bigger than ours, certainly like Star Wars ones, most of them are only deploying once a week. You know, they don't certainly don't have the frequency of deployments we have. And UNITAF was never about size of deployments. It's about frequency. It's about doing what you want when you want. And so within reason, obviously, and whether the slots are available. And so following that that aim, the answer's twofold. Do we actually want to be any bigger than we are? And there's no target to say we need to be bigger because to go back to that sort of American question is, are we satisfying the needs of the members as they are right now? And it's not necessarily about is John Smith, like is each individual member happy and are they getting all the slots they want? Because it's actually the collective that matters because to, to be successful, you only need most people to be happy because you need to have enough people on roster to be able to do the big deployments. But we, we have no technical ability to do deployments larger than our roster size. So I suppose I know it's not the answer to your question, but what I'm trying to say is that there's very little incentive for us to be bigger because we can't deploy that many people. You know, at the most, we deploy half of our rostered size, right? Which just so happens to be 70 people. And I'd argue that that is the upper limit to what's enjoyable on a regular basis. And so I no, think... I agree. I think if, if in an alternate universe, Armour 3 supported 200 players, no, let, let's 500 players, I think we'd have 250 people on active roster. And I think we'd have that because, sorry, a thousand people on active roster, double the deployment size, because I think we'd be regularly doing those 250 deployments and we'd need a thousand people to do it. So I think the reason why we're smaller is not because uh, we want to be or because we don't want to be bigger. It's because when we look to do the recruitment and the intakes, we're doing what's necessary. So if I say to Stag 1, you know, we need to maintain 130 people on roster because that's what we need to do, 70-man deployments, and that's what we want to do on a Sunday. That's what we'll do. But we turn many, many applications away, and we're very slow in responding to them for the exact reason that we don't actually need more people. If anything, we're trying to put them off um, and grow at a, you know, like a more steady rate, with one exception, which is you know, we've had a lot of people join recently that were referrals of people already in UNITAF, and we treat them slightly differently because 
you know, if you've got a friend that you want to come in, it's not really that fair that we um, drag our feet on that. Um, so I, I suppose the that first point is just on there's not necessarily a direction of travel that says we're trying to grow. It's not strictly true. But I think the second part of your question is like about frequency. Is that fair? Yeah. But uh, I'm then wondering how do we increase frequency then? Because, I mean, we do have a lot of things going on, but it's not as much as we used to have a couple of months back when we were a lot more frequent, I think, right? Well, I mean, that's it's it's interesting that you say that because it's statistically false. But, okay, then then I am wrong. Yeah, but I think I think, but it's all a matter of perspective as well. We had a little brief before we came onto Tafcast, and I, and I did say it's interesting because people will say like, "Oh, there's less ops or whatever." But statistically, we've done more ops now than in the last four months, and we're halfway through the month, and so it's statistically false. But I think it's an it's an impression, right? Because it depends where you come from. Like a lot of the ops this month have been special forces. Um, three months ago, we did multiple really, really large ops in a week, whereas now we're doing like one large op and a lot of smaller ones. And th those obviously add up. So it's all a matter of, I think, perspective. Um, I think the answer is what we're trying to do. At the moment, you need to be an NCO to do a lot of things, you know, to schedule an op, to schedule an FTX, to do this, to do that. I think the tendency is we're probably going to move in a direction of travel that as soon as we're able to control the standard, will make those things available to more and more people. So mission making is a great example of that. There's a lot of non-NCOs that can make great missions. And if they can make that a proven point, then they should be able to schedule them so that they could be claimed by leadership and, and they should go ahead. And so I think the answer is to your question is we'll make, uh, we'll make more, the unit more active and even more frequent than it is now, which is a really stupid thing to say based, based on the stats of this month. But if people want to slot, if people want to go to more missions, we can provide them, um, by making the barrier to entry, uh, for raising deployments easier. Um, but and we'll maintain the quality of that through the through the approvals process that we already have in place. Uh, but I just caution that by saying that there is a lag measure, which is if you increase the force size by thirty people, it's going to take about three months before those thirty people actually contribute. For the first three months, they're just going to leech the system, not because they want to, but because they get they're finding their feet and they don't understand. You know, how do I help? Or maybe they don't even want to help yet. Um, so we, we've had a growth spurt you know, this month and, and October, November, and it's probably going to take till January, February before those people actually start contributing in any meaningful way. If any given deployment is limited by technicalities to, let's say, 70 slots, can we do we have the server capacity to run concurrent missions then? Let's say on a big Sunday or a big Saturday, we can do two 60-person ops. In a fairytale universe where we've got the leaders and the mission makers to do so, couldn't we? Yeah. Cool. And, and I suppose... It, it is still a manpower issue then, where you need the mission makers and you need the platoon leaders, the company commanders, the fire team leaders. Yeah, I, th I think so. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting point, though. Like, my, the logic would tell you, well, rather than do them together, why don't you do one from 6, uh, was it 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. and one from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m., for example, rather than 
because it's still a Sunday night or a Saturday night. So I, I'd always be in favour of not clashing things. But then that might be part of the problem because a lot of stuff doesn't clash. That's where you get people doing like 30 deployments a month because stuff isn't clashing. So they just go to the everything, basically. Uh, whereas yeah. if, if things clashed, then the people that couldn't get on the first one would be on the second one. And maybe, maybe that's a, an interesting point to make. Yeah, because I think I might at this time uh, have the same problem as a lot of the newer members have is that I'm not like constantly on the deployment page checking when their next deployment is. And when these smaller orbits come out, I don't have the chance to join them, even if I look at it like three, four hours later, it's already filled. And I think the frequency is great, but if it's still like maybe like 20, 30% the same people going on these smaller ops and people want to fill them slots but they don't you know yes yeah, so look at the website all the time it's a really interesting point that one and it's quite a big topic but the, we've had a few discussions on this because you're not the only one certainly there's a lot of people that work uh you know like physical jobs that aren't in front of a computer and one of the things you're looking at still needs some sort of level discussion and we were planning on putting it in the annual survey obviously at the end of the year and we may even put it in a very specific survey about fatigue right because before fatigue i don't really remember before fatigue um it was just dog eat dog you know your internet connection was a big factor in who got the slot and who didn't and fatigue the goal of fatigue was right rather than the first 10 seconds of the deployment can we spread that out to the first 10 minutes and part of my reflection on what you've just said and, and speaking to other people is, does fatigue now need to be hours, not minutes? Not, and, and for a lot of people, they're like, oh, that's a nightmare. But all it's saying is like, rather than be frantically sitting there looking at it, you know, um, if you spread it out over hours, then um, it's a lot fairer to, to those people that, that, you know, essentially don't can't be online at the all bad time. And, um, there are lots of issues with that and the reason why you know we've not talked about it or done anything you know if you spread it out over 24 hours which would be the nice logical thing to do um the problem is that someone's fatigue might land them with a deployment button at 4 a.m which is obviously not practicable um so we have to look at other solutions and things like that so um, still talking about it but the, the the thing that that might do is help people that can't be online at release time because the fatigue is much larger and therefore the slotting period is hours not minutes essentially but you know we, we look at things like this and work out how we might be able to implement them but you're, you're quite right to raise that point I spoke to a few other people about it which is ultimately if you can't be online at the released time of the orbit then it doesn't matter what your fatigue is how many reprimands you've got or whatever because you might not get a slot and i think part of the solution to that is fatigue and how we can maybe adapt that system. But I think the other solution has already been mentioned, which is if you vary your deployment times, then your release times will also vary and that might help. Yeah, I believe it would help if we varied the times we do ops. Um, yeah. That could be a cool proof of concept for the coming weeks where we have a day of, let's call it three deployments all staggered by one hour, but running concurrently of, I don't know, 25, 30 sub squad or sub platoon size. So they would be running concurrently, but they start at different times and see which ones fill first, which ones don't fit at all. 
just realised, sorry, that Manel said that the retired people can't join the tough cast. I've just realised <laughs> that is actually the case, but I've just fixed it. So someone could let him know. So a slight oversight there. I'm just glad to be feeling listened to. All good. <laughs> oh, yeah, you never answered my other question, James. Sorry, go on, James. So when we were talking about CTAB and World War II and all the technology, oh, yeah, all the advantages of technology, why don't we implement, like, sometimes we don't have CTABs because in real life, uh, Blue Force Tracker is uh, shoddy at best, best and not working most of the time. Because, yeah, I mean... Yeah. Satellite uh, got shot down or something. No, but, like, seriously, uh, the US Army really had big problems with Blue Force Tracker, and we have perfect Blue Force Trackers, and they work all the time. So... Yeah, know. I think... My attitude, is, my attitude is for diversity of gameplay. Um, I think we have to. They're the same reason we do World War Two, right? It's fresher. It's a new experience. It forces you to. I mean, World War Two forces you to to go back to basics and think about the fundamentals and not rely on the technology. So, if that time came, you know, you should be better at it. And I, I agree with what you're saying. I think I think some campaign managers are within their rights to say, you know, due to this part of the mission uh, parameters, X, Y, or Z is not available, you know. But I think it's probably better done through a campaign in its totality so that people... I'm a big believer in the same reason why we tell you if it's a night op or if it's raining, you know, if you don't like that thing, if that's not your preference, then you don't have to turn up. Um and so that's why I sort of said, I think, you know, I'd rather say this is my campaign. It's called Desert Storm. You don't get optics and there's no GPS. People, some people really love that and that's why they'll sign up. And some people might go, you know what, that sounds shit. And they won't go and that's fine by me as well um, because that's not every campaign. And I think that's one of the benefits of our system is it's it's not as rigid as every deployment has to be the exact same because you've got the element of choice. I mean, I do agree that the campaign should be similar or the same in that sense. But my point is, like, we use uh, Blue Force Tracker, well, called CTAB in Arma, and in real life it doesn't work as well as it does in Arma. And from that aspect, it would be some randomness to us being able. I'm not saying that we should remove GPSs from people, just CTAB in general. As yeah. It wouldn't be working that day or whatever like that. But the GPS would still, you know, do its job yeah i think i think i'd be open to like oh me i can't mandate that a campaign gets rid of it but i think campaign no, no. managers can can could do that i mean i'm you'll know jazz i don't come from the i'm not a fan of ctab in that i tried to get rid of it for for certain people many a time i think it's a bad habit for if a fire if a squad leader doesn't know where his two fire teams is i think that's a problem if he needs to use a computer to find it out um, I think it's a particularly bad habit to rely on, rely upon it. So I'm, I'm always a fan of um, of that. Oh, can we go a step further and remove the magic map so you have to rely on communication to find your waypoints? There was something about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was suggested. <laughs> yeah, and 
it's really difficult to to I would say to people when when we make policy, um, if you're going to give something to someone, if you're going to give them something shiny, they'll take it. But if you're going to take it away, they'll hate mm-hmm. it. And you know that's very true. Um, and it's part of why, as an organisation, we have to be really sort of um, considerate about what we do. And when we started, you know, think about the loadout system in the arsenals. It's very minimalist because if you give everyone everything and then take it away, they're like, "Why have you taken it away?" Um, I mean, you can make an argument that the map that we use with you put a map, uh, you put a map marker down on yours, and it appears on everybody's map. Could be just digital communication. You, everybody's got a micro dagger simulated on their wrist, and there you go, put a point on the map. But so, so there, if, we're, if um, we're doing the Gulf, uh, the Desert Storm thing, just take it away. No digital communication. So there's a mod on the mod center being tested at the moment that makes everyone's map localized. Uh, Laxman's massive map. Correct. Yes. Yeah. To see my markers, I have to put my map on the floor so you can look at it and then you can copy them. Um. And there was a, a sort of suite of changes I was trying to make that included that. Because obviously, if you just get rid of CTAB, you're not really solving the problem. Uh, we're talking very blue sky stuff at the moment. But my argument was more, if we pulled back CTAB's usage slightly, specifically on the squad level, so it's more of a platoon level tool, and we pulled the maps back slightly, so you're, so you're quite right. So if I mark a BTR on the map, how is it that a rifleman 300 metres away can pull out a paper map and see where the BTR is? Um how do you navigate that problem? And that mod might be the solution to that. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of people argue, oh, realism where it matters because they love to pull the catchphrase out <laughs> for any reason. But the point is, why would you? Like, where's the fun in pulling out your map and seeing something that you haven't even spotted unless you've heard it on the radio? You know, um, you don't want to make it too easy. We're already too good at this game. You know, Think about all the work that the GMs have to go to to make things even half difficult without trying to kill everyone. Um, there is a, le- a level of satisfaction out of actually doing something yourself and working out and working as a team. You know, a, a workaround without implementing any mods mods might be to simply disable global insight chat. So you can only mark with the people around you, so local vehicle and your group chat, where the, it is feasible to have everybody each of those channels near you when you mark it, but everybody else is yeah. blind to it. I think, um, yeah, absolutely. I think to, to Vike's point, uh, pre-op briefing, because it goes through plan ops, everyone's map would be, anything that was on the map pre-op would probably be on their map anyway. Um, so I think that'd be an issue. Yes, and you can, you can always run a script that puts a marker on everybody's map. Exactly. Um, and we already have that, so, so they would be there. We're talking specifically about markers that, that are produced after we've left the base. In progress, yeah. Yeah. Well, this really wasn't on the lesson plan. I wasn't prepared for this. No. Oh, we're absolutely going on attention. <laughs> I'm loving it. <laughs> um, that's true. Didn't think about that. I didn't think about that. Squiddo drawing all his pictures and nobody will be able to see him. Oh, immediate counter argument. We can't do this. Yeah. <laughs> it'd be like a it'd be like a, a black market where you could go around and copy <laughs> NFTs. Yeah, it'd be yes. like an NFT where people are like Squiddo, can I copy your image onto my map because I really want. It. Yeah. <laughs> If you collect full 10 in one op, then uh, you've clearly deviated your way across the entire map. We really have meandered on this. Uh, I've got a rare Squiddo in my wallet. <laughs> Squiddo is but, Banksy. Yeah, this is, a, this is an interesting topic because we're going into a genuine future where obviously the opposite is true. So the average rifleman, probably not the average rifleman in terms of a conventional force, but certainly special forces, it has even more than CTAB in terms of, you know, they've 
goggles that show them where you know people are and we're just looking at the latest night vision that's being developed and things like that so it's going obviously in the opposite direction towards it but but my argument has always been and you know it's a very sort of weird question about down the line how much more fun does it get you know the more information you have because i think part of the fun is in the un- think about world war Two. part of the fun is in the un in the unknown yeah, and it's probably a similar thing with the with let's say artillery. We disable the artillery computer and we do fire missions the old-fashioned way because it's more fun that way. And doing it the way real military forces do it is too easy for a game. And in real life, there's actual lives at stake. Whereas here, we want to get the maximum enjoyment out of our two or three hours. So what you're saying is uh, it's easier to fire mortars in real life than it is in armor. Gotcha. That's Mort- I'm not so sure about any artillery. Plugging coords, plugging coordinates of where you are. Push button. Done. Well, we definitely That's don't go, use yeah. mortars as they do in real life. So yes, harder. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think unifying all of that through the campaign, like and having that variety of campaigns and keeping them true to what's possible within there and giving people the flexibility to go. You know what I like using the artillery computer, and therefore I'm going to do artillery on ones where that is available. Versus actually, I like the challenge of not having one and going on doing doing artillery on uh, like World War Two ops or wherever you don't have it is absolutely the way forward in my view. Yeah, and so maybe it does finalise Janice's question just a tiny bit when he's saying, you know, what else are we going to do with what we've got? There maybe is a third arm to that, which is we, we always have and we'll continue, I guess, to look at the status quo. Um, just look at ACE recently with the sort of the changes they made, but at the same time, you know, we'll tweak the 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 parameters of, of the environment, which will freshen it up every every now and then. And that you know that maybe will include some tweaks to, to things like who has C tab, who has GPS and, and creates a completely different dynamic. And the map mark is one that is a really interesting one as well. Um, so yeah. Hopefully that answers your question, Jim. Uh, Never satisfied? Nope. <laughs> cool. Is there anyone else? I think we're pretty much done with the lesson plan. Have been for a while, actually, but... Oh, there's there's two points on the other page. Is there? If you want to scroll down, yeah. Oh, what? It is, it is still the questions part. So we're not missed it. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, those two points uh, Scott's talking about is <laughs> getting back to our main topic today of learning in FTXs is, is uh, at least from my point of view, it seems that some people don't know who's able to create FTXs and who's able to make them, do them, or request new ones. And again, we've already talked a lot uh, about how it's going to be. But I think I also saw a suggestion in the suggestion channel uh, with a more personalized, like, oh, I want to see a mortar FTX in the next month or something like that. And people being able to put something like that up or a system for it. I know we already have the preference uh, or FTX preference, role preference. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for on our dossiers. But is that something, James, that might be worth it? A bit more short term than. Our monthly update your role preferences. 
Well, I think the only problem with the role preferences is it, is it remembers your previous one. So a lot of people probably will just just click update and then not change it. So oh, absolutely. A, yeah, there may be an element of resetting that so it is definitively fresh data. Um, or we could go down the route of um, requesting a lesson plan. So from the lesson plans directory, being able to click request on it, it's like a toggle. So we can see, oh, there's like 30 inactive requests for this. Actually, what about doing that on a lesson plan? Then re requesting this specific lesson plan, like, oh, I really want to learn some more. Oh, sorry. I uh, <laughs> kind of zoned out there. That's fine. I, I zoned out earlier. It's all good. That's, yeah, it's yeah, that, that's what I meant. Like, yeah, request a lesson plan rather than a combat area because requesting core infantry doesn't necessarily tell you which FTX you need to be running. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yep. And maybe the penultimate question is are FTXs even worth it to you guys? Are you learning something new? Are you being able to hone your skills that you maybe already have tried yourself or had already had uh, experience with in previous units? I know personally, I've never touched a mortar, I've never touched artillery before I went into this unit, and I've all learned it in here. And I'd like to say I'm fairly less inaccurate than I was before. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, there's definitely some merit. It's better for me personally. So it would be interesting to know if, if that's also the thing for you guys. Like no learning new testimonial, stuff. isn't it? Uh, sorry, I do mission support 90% of the time. Well, actually, that's not true anymore. Like if, we, if we were a school and it said, like, I'm slightly less uneducated. <laughs> <laughs> My headset's on nine percent battery, so it's like a, an indication that this Tafcast is uh, running its course. You think it saps more? I think, I think this is the longest Tafcast. No, 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 no. Probably. I think it is. Nah, is it? I believe it is. Got to check. I mean, if we keep asking whether it is, it will become it eventually. <laughs> yeah, by yeah, definition, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Natlas. Uh, you, you, you failed to realize that I'm already campaign manager for uh, Sapphire. Uh, the first, <laughs> uh, Toughcast 1 and 2 were one hour exactly. And 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 were all two hours. Uh, this is two hours, 39 minutes. Oh, terrible. Uh, uh, yeah, but those don't factor in Tafcast. So which I, I think, think, I think do today. the concern is that Zuka has not stuck to the lesson plan. Hey, meta. <laughs> Still got all the points across, didn't we? we Where's got... your finger guns now? Sorry? Where's your finger guns now? Hold on. Yeah, but we get administration hours for uh, doing <laughs> TAFCAST. We don't. <laughs> you only had two demands. It was, can we have our own avatars and can we have ours? Well, yeah. <laughs> Actually, what what would you give us hours for for a Tafcast comms? It's got to be comms, doesn't it? No, it's chatting shit all day anyway. Ah, I that's true. Just uh, just to come back, Spectre's just made a really really good point. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of times where we repeat information that's on either the same FTX if you if you go into it, or the same uh, same information is contained within multiple FTXs where it is a requirement, but um hopefully the uh like required FTXs plan with uh you know in order to be able to attend this one you have to have done that one should should 
um, get rid of that so that we can well, just have it specifically focused to the hours of content that are required for that and not any of the stuff you might not know beforehand that the tier system doesn't quite edge out. I think what he's also saying is, um, you know, if you've been in the community for 10 years, even though some of our procedures will be specific to us, you know, they're ultimately based on US Army tax op, right? So there's going to be a lot of other units or whatever that use the same, if not very similar procedures to us, even if they're slightly different, they could be, you know, identical. But our system essentially, and by design, is saying, even if you join, you've got 5,000 hours in there and 4,000 of those from Milsim, your tier zero, you know, because it's your experience with the Unitaph, not your experience elsewhere. And so you could end up with people, which is quite true, and I think I've said this before, you know, um, you could end up with someone that's better in inverted commas, there's someone at tier four that's tier zero, and that's a, the nature of um, the experience-based system that's automated. So the the answer to that is twofold. Um, soon TM will roll out the qualification system that was detailed in a previous SIRAP, and it's not meant to replace the tier system, but it's essentially there to help people that have, have proven that, you know, they can do a specific role. Let's use squad medic as an example, because I think of plenty of times that some of this brand new can has jumped in as a squad medic and done a great job at it. Um, so it will solve that problem by letting you slot as it, but still prioritizing those that have the have done both. You know, have have got the qualification in inverted commas and the tier, um, but will help those that don't have the tier but do have the qualification. So that would be the first one, and the second one is the misconception that the hours element of the practice system is there to force you to learn. If you already know the topic, it's there to force you to teach. Um, the system works. If if you think you already know something and you've mastered it, then run the FTX, don't go to it. Um, that's the whole point of the system. It's also the best way to get the hours. Oh, Mixie, I'm not sure I want to ask that question. <laughs> that, that was a good question, though. So if there's if there's any more good ones like that, maybe we'll tackle them. But otherwise, uh, I think we've covered a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah. I oh, there's one it. last one I think we can finish off with. Uh, Spectre asking, can you, a.k.a. Other, he or other privates, instruct in FTXs? And the answer is probably, yeah. Yes. Yeah, it happens frequently. I'd probably draw the line at recruits. Uh, the thing is, uh, there's a lot of stuff we don't let recruits do, and it's probably going to get even worse, to be honest. Um, there is an element of when, uh, if we use Spectre as an example, because I'm assuming he's asking the question because he, he's got a lot of experience. Um, when Spectre was a recruit, there was probably an element of frustration in that you know, you're know you not allowed to do a lot of stuff. And the misconception is that that's because we think you can't do it. But actually, the recruit stage is more of an endurance thing than it is anything else. If, if people can't get past that stage because they don't like the restrictions that are put on them, then that's actually fine by us. In fact, it's preferable that they don't get past it. Um, to me, it's more of a, can you tolerate our system and our way of doing things and understand that, you know, later down the line, once you've proven to us that, you know, you respect the system, the system will respect you. There are a lot of people that join and they, they don't like the fact that they can't, you know, command a tank, on day one 
And if they don't stay, I've got absolutely no issue with that because I think your attitude needs to be different here. Your attitude's got to be, what can I do to contribute to the team for this mission? And if I can't be a tanker, that's fine. But in two weeks' time, I'm going to be a tanker or whatever. Um, so for me, it's very much an attitude thing of, you know, we're, we absolutely respect everyone, but the priority has got to be the people that have been here the longest. And, you know, it's got to trickle from there. And so... Um, absolutely you know i'd say with the exception of recruits i think anyone that's private and above has passed probation should be able to lead an ftx and even more so with the lesson plans feature coming out because essentially what where can you go wrong as long as you can speak english and people can understand you at what point can you realistically make a mistake and and my my attitude is always the same with every deployment which is as long as the aars are good and the feedback's good i'll let anyone do anything within reason Ah, oh, I just had to, to say, that. If, if, oh, you yeah. shadow, if you shadow played that, that could be used out of context. Always oh, uh, open and then there. shot firmly. Well, we've got Craig recording it, don't we? That's true. Oh, wait, yeah. you just no, cut no, it out. Nobody, he just... nobody clipped that and used that. Out of context. That's, uh, that's sop now. <laughs> Spoken operating procedures. Uh, it was even shittier than my normal ones. <clears throat> Never mind. But yeah, I, I totally get the points as well you guys have of repeating stuff. I especially noticed it when I did an ATFTX, and I think 90% of the people on there knew how to point the tube at enemy tank and shoot. Uh, and was kind of stumped at like, oh shit, what, what do I do with them now? Because I filled out an hour looking at all the different launchers and stuff and things we do. But what what do I do now? And that's exactly where creative stuff, like I got loads of feedback at the end of that. I think Skull's yours was also in there. Yeah. It was the way back in ATFTX. Um yeah, I think the second one I did, we stood on a hill and I think we all shot back and forth the different cool things you can do with launchers. Yes. Yeah. I, I think it's a the Spectre question is a is a great one though, which is I think the next thing we'll probably look at doing is opening up the scheduler to non NCOs. And then I'm not exactly sure in what format I'm going to do that. But, um, you know, if Spectre can go to the op center, schedule an FTX for CGB, because essentially if, he, if, if John Smith says, you know, I don't want to go to a mount FTX because I, I already know the content and B, if I go there, someone's going to be reiterating the content that I've already, you know, gone. And I'm only going because I need the hours for tier three. And whilst that's, it's sort of the intent, but also not the intent, uh, my belief is that actually, if you say to that person, "Well, actually, yeah, we understand you know it, but we want we still want you to practice it," you know, over time because that's the point of the practice system. So if you already know it, teach other people it. And even if Spectre just took five people on that FTX rather than fifteen, if it was an NCO, who cares? You know, let him schedule it. It's on an approved lesson plan. The five people that go to it are benefiting from the experience, and he's benefiting from teaching. So. Um, you know that that to some extent could also be applied to operations. You know, there's plenty of non-NCOs that make operations; they can't currently schedule them. But if the approval system essentially published them to a, a back-end area where they could be claimed by leadership, actually, to go back to Johannes's question, this is all in that roadmap category of delegation of responsibilities and decentralization of the organization. And these are all things that we're you know looking at relatively seriously. And I think the thing to do now, as is tradition, is to end on a barbershop quartet and just sing a shanty. Yeah, and I'll be out. 
<laughs> Come on, you've still got juice in your in your headphones. But no, if you if you, yeah, mine is about to run out. Um, if ah. you do, if you did miss any part of it, I noticed there's Craig sent me like three separate recordings, so I'm probably going to have to stitch it. So it might be up slightly later than usual. But obviously, we'll be available on all major platforms. I will leave the thread open for anyone that wants to uh, read up on it um, while they're listening, or if you think of anything afterwards that you want to pop in here and ask a question, we'll keep an eye on it. This is where, where real podcasts thank their patrons, I believe. Yeah, and obviously if you've got any ideas for stuff for future podcasts, then feel oh, free to... We should probably thank White Wolf for being here. That's oh. a thing. Okay. This is like yeah. the definition of winging it, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Thanks, for... <laughs> you know, you know what? You, you, <laughs> you can listen, listen to this back, and then you'll just know the exact moment where the lesson plan finishes. Yeah, no, cheers for uh, cheers for having me on. Um, I will happily talk about lesson plans and FTXs for literally hours. So uh, yeah, try to. We, we know we know you like to go on tangents, but. Yeah, yeah. Which which we totally did today. So, uh, yeah. Thanks again, White Wolf. This time, but seriously, thank you for showing up. All the work you guys do behind the scenes as well. Uh, nice to have you. Thanks everybody for listening. 